Ducky's flying on a broomstick and she has a cat. Now she's over a town, which is a place where people live. She's encountering problems with weather and other witches. Here come some seagulls. Watch out for the poop kiki. <laughs> The Incomparable Number 194 May 2014 Welcome back to The Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell. We're back to talk about another one of the movies of Hayao Miyazaki, the great Japanese animation uh, writer, director, producer, everything. Uh, we did a whole episode about him that was just... It's the only two-person episode ever of The Incomparable where it was just me and John talking about Miyazaki movies. And then we did a whole episode about uh, My Neighbor Totoro, with this very panel and I wanted to get the band back together because we had such a great time to talk about my favorite Miyazaki movie, Kiki's Delivery Service. Joining me to talk about Kiki are John Syracuse. Hi, John. I am ready, Jason. I, I have no doubt you're ready. <laughs> We're not talking about Game of Thrones. You know that, right? Oh, wait, what? We <laughs> oh, no, no. <laughs> the scene where the cat murders that guy is just, wow, it was surprising. Gigi is coming. <laughs> that's uh steve Lutz you heard there hi steve hello it's so good to be back in weird weird japan <laughs> it is isn't it it's nice to be back here it and really is. and of course our our fourth member of our little uh miyazaki uh, movie club merlin man hi hi guys how's it going it's good to have you back that's great to be here did everybody watch the movie has everybody seen the movie no should have watched the movie no i haven't <laughs> seen this one a couple three times yeah yeah, I watched it. Um, I watched it today, and I watched it with the um, Japanese audio track and the subtitles for I think only the second time. Although to be fair, it was the last two times I've watched it. I've watched it that way, but I have it. I feel like I have the Disney dub version ingrained in my mind. And that when we talk about anime, this is always the issue: is you know w- what's the real version? And there really isn't a real version unless you speak Japanese, because you're either relying on the subtitles to tell you things. Because we, we had that moment where my wife and I were watching it and saying, "Oh, well, that's different in the in the in this version." And we tried to ascribe a certain level of authority to the subtitles, and I'm not sure we can do that either. So no, you definitely cannot, because I don't know much Japanese, but I know enough Japanese to know when the subtitles are incorrect, and they're incorrect often. Yeah, I was looking on. I think I think the Wikipedia page even says like when. I was suspicious about the let's have some hot chocolate, and I was like, "That's coffee. That's because why is she putting lumps of sugar in her hot chocolate?" <laughs> that is the, the most coarse ground hot, co- hot <laughs> chocolate I have ever seen in my life. It's actually Ovaltine instead of boys in the town. There's a disco. That's right. Yeah, I, exactly. I didn't catch that till this time. Yeah, well, we can't have that. Well, that would be crazy. Yeah. And I have no idea what they actually said, but I, even just minor things where the subtitles always spell things out where people are addressed by name or title. Okay, Dad, I'll be right there. And the actual dialogue is okay. You know, <laughs> I, I feel fortunate in that uh, apparently the there was quite a bit of controversy over the original Disney dub of this, although it apparently was okayed by Miyazaki and, and Studio uh, Ghibli. Is it Ghibli or Ghibli? Or is it Ghibli? <laughs> you couldn't pronounce it. Uh, yeah, I just, it's, I just, yeah. I was reading that the same thing today, and it sounds like before you fire off the horn, I guess there was, <laughs> um, there's one I think pretty important plot point that sounds like it was uh, completely different. In the yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. The cat, a cat related plot point. Cat related. Yes, yeah. exactly. That's a really important one that changes the movie. You know, <laughs> what yeah. what I had was it turns out I guess the 2010 
uh, Disney dub where they actually yeah. kind of scaled back some of the bombast that they added in and got rid of that particular messed up plot point and uh, it, it works a lot better now I think. Yeah, and that's not the version I have. I've got the, you know, whatever the previous DVD is what I have. And this is a movie also that has been released in Blu-ray in essentially every country in the world except for the United States so far as I can tell. Uh... So that's really nice. Thanks a lot Disney. Psst, Disney. Yeah. Yeah, it kills me. I we didn't do this for a while because I was just waiting for that Blu-ray to come out and it's like no no sign of it. Don't know what's going on. Well, once you once you get the gospel from uh, Syracuse and decide that it's time to watch it in whatever version you watch, subtitled instead of dubbed, it it, it ain't easy to do by conventional means in the U.S. That's all I'm gonna say about that. Yeah, are, well, you can buy. I mean, the DVD you can buy the Disney DVD and watch it in Japanese with English subtitles. It's, how are the How are the subtitles? Are they good? Well, I mean, my, you can get your own. and You can go to like open <laughs> subtitles or whatever. Where do you, where, what's your go to for that, John? Yeah, fan subs usually are are almost always better than the official subtitles mm-hmm. because you can choose when you're picking your fan subbers. You can pick the pedantic fan subbers who are going to do literal translations, and then it's going to read kind of like I mean, it doesn't make sense half the time. But you could but <laughs> rocket you monkey like, death I, car. This is exactly the literal <laughs> translation of what they're saying, and you have to figure out exactly like it would be like a translation of some French thing. It would be like a, a lightning delivery mail, and be like, I think they mean email. You know, like <laughs> that's. You have to figure it that way. Or you can do the fan subs if they're trying to catch the spirit of it. Or I mean, you can just pick your fan sub crew who you think does a good job uh, and get the experience you want out of it. But And it sounds like the subs on the Disney version are based on the script for the the original dub that was only available on a Laserdisc and on, like, Japanese airplanes. Yeah, yeah. So it's not based on the actual, like, it, it's it's got, like, oh, oh the humanity, which is not... <laughs> In that right. was in the that was in the subs of mine, and I think it's yeah. it's not in the dub. But that it wasn't scraped out dub. of the dub that I saw. Although yeah. I guess it was in the original one. But see, the thing with all these movies is like these movies that are are aimed at children or are good for children. If you have children, you will find yourself inevitably watching the dubs because little children can't read. Yeah. And uh, even though I've had my children watch many subtitles movies where I've, I've literally sat on the couch and read them the subtitles and just had them watch it that way. Most of the time, they watch it in English. And so at this point, I've seen this movie dubbed more times than I've seen it subtitled by far because my kids used to watch it over and over and over and over again. And I have to say, as far as dubs go, this is a pretty good dub, all things considered. I mean, it's very different from the original version. And in the beginning, I resented it because of that. But like Totoro, there is a certain charm to the dub to this movie. Matthew Lawrence, notwithstanding. Well, I like the fact that the second, that this 2010 DVD doesn't, you know, doesn't use the Disney, um, Disney pop songs that were inserted at the beginning and the end, and goes back to the Japanese songs, and because right. that that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, there are a lot of there are a lot of differences in this movie between the the the, the English dub and and just reading with the subtitles. I think the cat is actually the biggest one, right? Because Gigi is right. is this high pitched, you know, I am a cat kind of voice, and it's Phil Hartman in the English dub. And Gigi, Gigi says so much less too. Yeah, he he says a lot, and he's a wise cracking animal sidekick in the. Well, English that's kind dub, of a big right? deal, really, because I mean, isn't he effectively supposed to be sort of the representation of Kiki's childhood, you know, or or her sort of immature thoughts? Well, and, accor- according to that fact that we all apparently read on the internet, yes. yes but I'm, I don't entirely like uh, that. That may have been right. their intention, but when they turn him into Phil Hartman, like it, it's totally different, and you can you can reject it and say, "Well, that's not how this movie is supposed to be." But I still feel like Phil Hartman works as Phil Hartman in the context of the dub. 
It, it works, but it is real different. I mean, we're watching it in um, in the subtitled version. Um, Gigi says a lot less. It has a much more feminine voice. I mean, I, I guess I'm. I don't. I'm guessing Gigi's still a, a gendered boy. I don't know. Well, but, yeah, he, uh, has, he has he has uh, children later. Lily seems pretty clearly to be a girl. Well, don't be normative. Uh, the uh, <laughs> the. <laughs> They did, shame, they on you, shame on you, John Syracuse. The Adopt feline kittens? adoption service is also part of her. Uh, her it was business. the '50s, and World War II hadn't happened. It was a complicated time. But but um but but no, there's I I, I don't want to you know go crazy here. But there's a lot that hinges on like what you think's going on with that cat. And uh, Gigi, so anyway, Gigi says a lot less, and Gigi really reads less as a wiseacre than in the English version, and much more as like uh, kind of a, a overabundance of caution. Not not a pessimist exactly, but almost like the the kind of nagging, uh, like what super ego I guess you know that's kind of like telling her, oh, be careful what you're doing here. Uh, he goes with the flow much more in the original. Uh, Phil Hartman does fulfill the role of you know C three PO. Oh my goodness, should we be going to this yeah. asteroid field? Blah blah hmm. blah. Right, but there's there's almost no way that you can construe him as sort of a part of her subconscious in in the Phil no Hartman way, version. No way, no way, because she does not have that sort of wisecrackery side. Yes. And that's why, that's why he often seems to be in a different movie because her reaction to him is not the appropriate reaction that you would, that you would expect to have for, for, you know, for his character in, in the dub version. You know what I he's mean? He's great, though. I, I got to say, I absolutely love his character in this. Even though he's basically the feline Paul Lind. In fact, I didn't even recognize him <laughs> as Phil Hartman originally. <laughs> I was trying to place the voice, and I was like, ah, screw it. I'm going to go with Paul Lind. And uh, that worked out fine for me because he gets all the best lines. And... I think this is his last voiceover performance that he did. I mean, the yeah. last performance he did was, was those last episodes of News Radio. But I think this was his last voiceover. And, you know, yeah, there there are moments where you can tell, like, like there's the scene where at the very beginning where Kiki's mom wants her to uh, use uh, use her uh, broom, wants, wants Kiki to use her old broom and not this new broom that Kiki has made. And Kiki's like, it's old, it's stupid, you know, it's like a very teenager kind of thing to say. And in the original, um, the at least what the sub says is she turns to Gigi and Gigi's like, yeah, you should use your mom's broom. And in the in the in the dub, it's like, well, I don't know. I think your broom is kind of crappy. You should you you know, let's take let's take the old one, right? It's your, just your broom is nice. Use your mom's. So instead of <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a different. It's just very different. Where he's he's acting as a character, whereas in the original, it does read sort of like this is the you know, I know you're rebelling, but you should just take it from your mother. Go ahead. Um, it's just different. Very different. We could probably talk in large, broad strokes about the story. The story is pretty tellable without ruining the whole thing, don't you think? Yeah, let's let's. Well, let's... not much <laughs> as usual. Yes. Chapter two, not much. Not happens. much happens. <laughs> exactly. I, I said on our first uh, Miyazaki podcast, I said that this is one of those movies where there is no real antagonist. Uh, it's just sort of things happen, and as I said at the time, sort of like the weather. The weather is an antagonist here, and circumstance. But only very briefly. I mean, any any given thing that would probably be like a horrible, you know, a time for something awful to happen in a regular Disney movie or some other animated film is more or less resolved in a couple of seconds. Like his propeller takes off, and you're expecting like something horrible to happen. 
And, uh, you know, next scene, it, it cuts to the next scene, and he's just sitting there with the propeller. Yeah. <laughs> the movie's realistic in a way that, uh, I think we said this in the Totoro episode, that in the way that Totoro is realistic, not so much in that there's magical flying things or that there are witches or anything like that, but that the characters behave in believable ways, and the things that happen are sort of the mundane things that happen in all life. Sometimes your mother gets sick. Sometimes people travel from place to place and pick vegetables and move into an old house. Sometimes you move to a new town. You meet people. You make friends, you get your feelings hurt, like, but nothing, with the exception of the very end of the movie, nothing out of the ordinary that might not happen in real life happens in this movie. And you're always expecting it to be like, well, this has to be heightened drama or exaggerated action or surely something terrible or amazing or fantastic is going to happen. Uh, And again, until the very end, which is still vaguely plausible kind of disaster type scenario, it is very sort of run of the mill. And that, I think, is what draws me so much to this movie. Uh, is that it feels it feels more like real life in a relaxed sort of way that lets you connect with the things that are happening to you and just saying all these things could have or have happened to me with again the possible exception of the end even though I'm not a witch or whatever I'm just not accustomed to these these gentle movies I mean it's <laughs> every time I see something like like we see Kiki lighting the fire from the point of view inside the oven and the, the grandmother is looking on behind her sort of benevolently. And I, I, I keep finding myself thinking, look out, she's going to push you in. They called you here so they could burn the witch. Not, it's not that kind of movie. I know, but it's, it's, that kind of stuff has been so ingrained for all the animated features I've watched my entire life. Like something terrible is going to happen. A parent's going to die or, you know, uh, she's going to lean too far off over the side of the bike and shred her ear off on the roadway. <laughs> watching, watching these movies with my kids when they were little, and we, we all watched it as a family today with the subtitles on, which was fun because, again, they're all, they all can do it now. Uh, but watching them when they were little, you know, my, my, both of my kids, my son especially, but both of them, uh, when there were, like, really scary moments or there were really bad people, they would hide or they wouldn't like it. And one of the great things about these Miyazaki movies, and especially about Kiki, is there's nothing like that in here. It's a gr- it's a really great fun movie, but there that that is not there isn't a villain who is doing villainous things. It's just it's it's very different, and it, and it you know the whole movie feels different because of it. She has no enemy that she's battling right. at any point. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, enough to know if it's a if it's a, an anime thing, but it definitely seems like a Miyazaki thing. They're very spacious about making this story, I mean, another way that it's like Totoro to me, at least in my own head, is that, you know, childhood, uh, growing up, really your whole life, but especially up through your teen years, you're just constantly confronted with things that just kind of make sense. And, you know, and whether there's all kinds of stuff, especially in Totoro, where, like we said before, like, did that really happen or not? Mm, Maybe it doesn't matter in some ways in the movie. It's just that for a kid, there's so much mystery to stuff that happens. And there's so many things that you can't understand or you try to base on a previous experience. And that spaciousness of not having somebody trying to poison you with an apple or not trying to throw you into an oven, (laughs) there's a lot of space for this to be about the kind of personal turmoil. And he, he says as much. I in the. I read one of the, I think it was the introduction to the, maybe the manga of this, where he said, you know, that this is, it's, it's not difficult to go out and be on your own and make money. It's, it's difficult to have like self-realization and to like grow up. That's the hard part. And I think that's, that spaciousness really works in these movies. Once you, once you get past expecting an anvil to fall on somebody. The the other thing is like in the pacing of this movie and and most of his movies, like like most anime, it has a focus on kind of sensory experiences and there's several, many, many scenes in the movie that involve that. But even if you just look at the pacing of like, he just showed three shots that didn't include the main character that had no dialogue or music going over them, just as sort of a way to transition you from one and they weren't establishing shots or whatever. It's like 
so many scenes in this movie, if you tear it apart, you're like, wait a second. That like someone had to sit there and draw that scene, that scene, and that scene. And between this 60 seconds, there's no dialogue. And like, not like, why is that even in the movie? It's like, you got to make it faster. You got to cut it. You got to have tighter. It's got to be action, action. We got to have dialogue scene, you know, and this movie is not like that. And, and I think the lingering on those things, it's not, it's not like a Malick film. Like he's not lingering on, you know, like a tree growing out from an acorn or something like it's not, it's not that level, but it is very much influences the pace and experience of watching this movie. Maybe not for kids, maybe only for adults, but I watch it. And, you know, if I haven't seen a movie in a long time, I'm just always amazed at sort of how it, how it just unwinds and just sort of rolls out in front of you and it, at its own pace, sort of at the pace of life instead of at the pace of like narrative. There's a particular scene in that in that vein that really stood out for me, which is uh, when it, there's this very deliberate long scene of Kiki at the bakery counter, just staring out the window, sort of. You see the, refle- the, the reflections of people walking by, and she's just it, staring. Yeah, and it's it's total silence, and she's watching. You know, the the boy on the bike pulls up, and then the girl gets on the bike and drives on, and it's just. Well, see, but that scene, that's their version of an action scene. Like we're t- making narrative <laughs> things, like because now it's like, what happens? She's bored. She's inside. She has to work. The girl, the, the boy comes up on the scooter. The girl who's better dressed than she is gets on the bike, gets on the bike side saddle, and they go off together, and she remains inside. Like, And yes, no, there are many scenes in here that have no dialogue, but that's like an action scene. It's like, oh, we are developing the character. We are showing, we are showing how she feels by showing what she sees, even though she has a slack expression the entire time. Sort of right, like but... bringing, bringing you into the inner life of this girl without giving you a voiceover. Even as an action scene, though, I mean, there's just so many frames where there's just nothing happening. Nothing's moving. There's quiet. There's silence. And you would never see that many frames go by without something happening in a, a, an American uh, animated film. And I, I love that about it. I think it's great. I, I wrote that particular bit down because it just it struck me. You know, this is so, so different from what I'm used to. You know, growing up watching Hanna-Barbera uh, cartoons, and you think of the running joke about how you keep running past the same window over and over, and there's so much, like, unnecessary, I mean, it's in a positive way, unnecessary luxury to the pacing of the scenes, but also the incredible amount of detail and the glistening water and stuff. But, I mean, how many cartoons have you watched where it's just people eating <laughs> for a few seconds? Or, like, Kiki waking up, and you hear, you, well, she wakes up in a room, and she hears, I just noticed this this time um, watching it. Like, I think it's, she hear like, a boat going by, and she rolls over, and the, and the sheet uncovers Gigi. And Gigi kind of stirs a little bit and then crawls back under the sheet. It's just a delightful little little tone. Not necessary to anything about pushing the plot forward. But, you know, in the same way as like you were saying, Steve, uh, earlier, Steve, I think it's, it's hard for somebody like me to readjust when you're expecting that, that ridiculous amount of pacing. But, right. you know, the, the, the scenery and the background and the activity and that m- mundanity, I guess you could say, uh, is, is really is like, like a character in the movie. It's, a, it's so important that this not be pace that way and then when it does happen and you get to that amazing you know third act and suddenly it's like an explosion of activity it's like like the end of totoro you're like wow this is like a whole different movie now there's stuff happening it really underscores that well even even in the middle they the actual action scenes they have for example when they decide to do action even if it's just like oh she's leaving home and she's going along and she's like you know floating on her broom and then it starts to rain and that tiny sequence of it starts to rain zoom along the top of the thing go in it's a couple seconds long or whatever but they do a good job again with going down the hill on the bike leaning into the turns that is a very well done exciting action scene it's like boy where it's, it's as if the camera is like 
still and lingering and calm but then when the action scenes come the camera knows exactly what to do to make the action scenes exciting in short bursts building up to the big finale at the end but even in the middle like when they when they need to do that they do it very very well and you know and go back to real life and it, it it's it's like her life where it's mostly just the mundane part of living your life punctuated by these significant events it's great that they can they can do something that's sort of action packed without necessarily having a whole bunch of craziness going on like during that sequence where she leaves home that you were talking about, I, I just made a note, this flying sequence actually feels dangerous. And it really does because they do such a good job of making her seem like she's unsure on her broom. And she's clearly unbelievably high up in the air. And it just, you watch that and there's not that much going on relatively on screen. But yet, you know, I was getting vertigo watching the thing. I like the scene the, the in terms of the Hanna-Barbera style animation. Uh, the thing that I noticed, I mean, when she goes and visits her friend, the painter, out in the countryside, I had that moment where it's like, ah, this is Miyazaki's like, finally, the countryside. I can do my all my Totoro stuff. I can have big trees and water glistening. And, and you know, that's nice. And, 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 you know, the fields stretching out to hills in the background. But early on, there's this scene where she's, um, first person she encounters when she's on her broom is this other witch who's, who's bitchy, right? She's like, hey, nice night, isn't it? Well, it was. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> terrible. But... Uh, there's Kiki is learning to fly, and at one point, uh, the, the the witch asks her to turn off her radio, and she reaches. I, I down, have this exact note in my. She, she reaches down to turn off her radio, and the broom bobs down, and she has to compensate and get it back to to come back up because just the act of leaning forward like that, it's like taking your hand off the steering wheel. It, it, it you know she's not an expert at keeping level, and then she bobs back up, and it's a little moment, but it, it you know. That that's a lot of animation work to do that, and yet it feels so much more real because then you realize she is struggling to keep it together, and you know it's not easy for her. But you know, again, if you're cutting quarters in, as an animator, you would never show something like that because it gives you hints about the physics of flying a broom, and you know, and it's not in a straight line, and uh, and yet we see it in in this movie and and i love that i i absolutely love that that's the luxury of miyazaki movies is that you know like so that first of all the miyazaki movies you know it's the traditional ones they have beautifully painted backgrounds which are more or less static they may pan across them or like zoom in on them or whatever right and those are beautiful like paintings in and of themselves then you have the character animation over it and you know no matter how minor the scene in a feature length miyazaki movie that's no matter what the scene is some person put their entire life and being into that scene. So the note that I have in this is that you have two witches flying alongside each other. And in, in a lesser movie, any lesser animated movie, the two people would be flying alongside each other and talking. And there would never be that bob. And there would, if you watch it, the other note that has it, she bobs when she, she adjusts the radio. When she comes back up, she readjusts her dress because she wants to regain her composure so she can continue <laughs> having the conversation. And some guy had to animate those, you know... 200 frames of animation or whatever it is and like he he or she poured their heart and soul into that animation and thought about it. i mean miyazaki probably keyframed it or whatever and then like there are no like oh and this is just a scene where there's dialogue so don't worry about it or this isn't a big <laughs> the deal. same or, cloud keeps or, going by yeah. the background. Or, or in this scene we're just, in this scene we're just worried about the background so don't worry about like every single moment you know and that's the luxury of these movies is like you know they just poured every ounce of of time and money and effort into it, it it's like the you know they say with like apple hardware or whatever where someone sweats over every little detail in in a future like miyazaki someone sweats over every little detail and kids are not going to notice this but it allows adults to rewatch these things again and again and, and pick out new things every time 
Also, the cumulative effect of what you're describing, you know, when you were saying that, I'm thinking like in any other movie, the two broomsticks would literally be parallel and equidistant the entire oh, yeah. time the two characters are talking. And, you know, now I'm, I'm thinking about that more now, and I'm realizing like from through the entire movie, there's one thing that's always sustained that adds to her character. Something you don't see a lot, which is that she really has to concentrate to fly. You know, you usually think of a witch hopping on like she's getting on a chopper and taking off. And in this case, <laughs> you can really tell that it's it's thick, especially at the end when she's actually like my favorite scene in the movie where she's sweating. You can see her perspiring to try and be able to fly when she's getting her mojo back. But th- that whole sense all the way through that, you know, what a weird balance it is, though, that we could see this this 13-year-old girl who has trouble flying, but we're never, like, that worried that she's going to, like, you know, fly into a propeller blade or something. There's not that constant sense of, of danger. I'm kind of worried when, when she in the credits when she's right in front of Pacing Tombow in his little bicycle airplane. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little worried about her hitting the propeller. That's a little actually. concerning, yeah. Tombow is very enthusiastic. <laughs> I know, but she's like, just, just don't take your eyes off the ball here, Kiki, or you're going to get chopped up. He's a very enthusiastic young man. <laughs> That's what I worry about it, but not until that point. I think my biggest moment of concern is in that end sequence where she's skidding along maybe a foot above the ground. Oh, there's yeah. Sort the, of a, that's, there's sort I, of a Star Wars trench sequence that goes on there I wrote, for I wrote, a few It's seconds. like she's on a skateboard at that moment, right? She's like she, – she doesn't land on the ground, but she's, she's flying inches off the ground. And right. the camera is low down, right? The perspective there is we're, we're, we're low at ground level and we're watching her just kind of skitter across the, the, the street – to get to the to the airship, she's got that stance of like those knobs that drive their Suzuki motorcycles down the freeway with their you know their feet up <laughs> on the back of the tail. Also, she's um uh, early on talking about how she flies and the way it works. When she first takes off, she you know she kind of goes sideways and she hits a tree and then she hits another tree and and in the in the in the subtitle version, um you you see the she you see her go over one tree right and. And uh, and then another tree shakes, so there's an implied collision. And then the father says, "Oh, she's you know now she's over the lake. She'll be fine." But you don't see her. You don't you don't see her take off under the horizon, flying straight like any other movie would do. Right, right. Like she's righted herself now, and she's figured out how to fly. No, she, go she's going side. She's not going straight. She's going sideways. She doesn't have it together. <laughs> and then and then it's funny because then you you see her go past the one tree, and you're like, "Well, now what?" And the other tree shakes, and you're like, "Oh, <laughs> she's got it again." But in it, it's much played much broad much more broadly in the disney dub version where the whole way you can actually hear i think Gigi and there's a little bit of kiki kind of saying like no not that tr- oh there we go again right there's yeah. there's more they always put more pattern. dialogue in the american versions because in the japanese versions of all these films they trust the audience to understand what's going on without having characters you know without, without having characters just you know spell out what's going on or have the reassuring line of dialogue to make sure you know what's happening or that you know whoa here comes it that, that's that seems to be the way they take anime and bring it to America. Like, well, obviously we need our characters to talk more. So as soon as characters aren't on the screen and they can add lines to them because the mouths, you don't have to see the mouths moving like they're off screen. It's like, yeah, start putting in the dialogue so the kids can follow along. And the, the Japanese movies just trust kids and adults and everyone to be able to understand what's going on without saying anything. And to, to their credit, like they have like long sequences in this movie where, for example, she, she uh, delivers the herring pie in the rain and it's wet, and Tombo's waiting for her, and she comes back home, and she has a couple words with Asano going up the stairs, but there's a long sequence where she's just kind of, like, silently returning and walks into her room and then walks up to her bed 
and then does the big flop on the bed, which is, again, <laughs> to totally realistic. And that whole long sequence doesn't have any words or even facial expressions to let you know what she's thinking, but they trust that, like, you will understand her situation. You know what she's thinking, and when she flops headfirst in the, onto that bed, it is not a shock, because that's exactly <laughs> what we all expect her to do at that point, because we are with her emotionally through that entire sequence. And it's not because there was a voiceover or there was yelling or screaming back and forth or anything like that. Also, I have a 12-year-old daughter, and I've seen that happen in my house now. <laughs> in fact, my daughter was like, oh, I do that. <laughs> I'm like, yep, yep, you do. Uh, honestly, I think the Japanese version is funnier when she takes off and hits the trees. I think it's funnier that it's absolutely silent and everybody is tensely watching if she's going to be able to do this. And she has this, she knows she's got an audience, which is, I mean, talk about the worst thing in the world. It's nice that everybody comes and says goodbye to her, but then they have to watch as she tries to fly. And then, and then after all of that, and she hits the tree, but she writes herself and it's kind of like, okay, it's going to be okay. And she goes over the other tree and they're like, all right, she's on her way. And then the other tree shakes and it's like, oh no. And it's subtle, but it's really, really funny. And it's more sticky in the, in the dub version. I mean, I don't want to make this all about subs and dubs, but I think it's funny that it's a different kind of humor and I, and I, I liked it. In the, the good in the news Japanese is I think version. they scaled that back, that broad comedy, a little bit in the 2010 version because I don't hmm. recall there being a whole lot of chatter going on during that huh. sequence. That... It's just her hitting the trees and then the bells ringing. That's and nice. And you do hear the bells ringing as she hits that last tree, but I don't, I don't remember hearing Gigi say anything at all. Time for a break for this week's sponsor, and we've got a great one for you. This week's episode of The Incomparable brought to you by the good people at ifixit.com, the world's free online repair manual for everything. You know these guys maybe because they take apart new products when they come out, but that's not all they do. They offer free step-by-step -step repair guides with foolproof instructions to fix all of your coolest stuff. If you shattered your iPhone screen, you need to repair your game console, need to swap the battery on a Galaxy S3, whatever it is, iFixit has you covered. They have Thousands of repair guides for electronics, smartphones, tablets, game consoles. They can hook you up with the parts you'll need to fix it. And everything they sell, they have tested and they guarantee. And best of all, iFixit designs and manufactures the most trusted repair tools for electronics, including their ProTech Toolkit. The ProTech Toolkit features 70 different tools to assist you with any mod, malfunction, or misfortune that might come your way. It features the 54-bit driver kit. Absolutely crazy. 54 different bits. They've got your Phillips heads, your Torx heads, but you've also got things like the Apple's crazy Pentalo bits that are specially made so you can't open them up. But with this toolkit, you can. A bunch of other stuff. Spudgers. You're going to need spudgers. Spudgers are little things you use to... I'm not going to explain spudgers to you. They're in there, and they help you get things apart and then put them back together again at the end. Lots of great stuff. Good for doorknobs and eyeglasses and cabinets and other stuff that you assemble yourself. It's not just for electronics, and it's got a one-year warranty. And then you can use the thousands of free iFixit guides to help you put those tools to use. So check them out at iFixit.com slash incomparable. Tell them we sent you for all the free repair guides you'll ever need. And when you're ready to buy, use Coupon code SNELL. That's a good one. At checkout and get 10% off your order of $50 or more. That's ifixit.com slash incomparable. Coupon code SNELL. And thank you to iFixit for supporting 5x5 and the incomparable.
Like Indiana Jones, though, the whole way that you're going to get the audience to identify with this character is it can't look easy for yeah, her. Yeah, exactly. She has to be vulnerable, and she has to not do well in many things. So, like, she's setting off on an adventure. And if you want the audience to feel like this is an adventure, because it's not like going to save the kingdom or, you know, anything like that. She's just going... She, first of all, she's leaving home at 13. You have to make that feel more fraught than it does. Like, oh, they used to do this because it seems crazy you would leave home at 13, but she's a witch and they do this special thing. And she's, like, she's on her broom, on her own, destination unknown. That has to feel like an adventure. And from the very beginning, it feels like an adventure because just getting off the ground is an adventure. Just leaving town successfully <laughs> is an adventure. And then, it, and then rain. Is rain an adventure? Rain's an adventure? Like, well, what do you do when it rains? You don't have any place to go. You're going to turn around and go back home and, you know, go like, like your father whispered in your ear, you can always come back home if you want to. You know, like, it, it, you have to identify with her vulnerability right off the bat. And so... It does feel like an adventure to if you were just to write down the events, what happens, that's not much of an adventure, but it really feels like it, you know, sleeping with the cows, waking up in a new place on the train, coming into the, the town across the water with the gulls. Like, that's not much happening, but you feel it through her because you immediately identify with her as uh, in over her head. Yeah, when she gets to the city, and, and this is my... Um, uh... Before I before I get to that, I should talk about the setting here because this is this is a fascinating thing in that this is a movie. When you watch Totoro, you are watching a movie about Japanese people in Japan. When you watch Kiki's Delivery Service, you are watching a Japanese movie in Japanese or originally at least maybe dubbed into English about characters who are in an undefined Northern European country where right. a lot of the writing is in English or in a fake Germanic kind of language. In fact, there's there's even some English language stuff happening in the background of the Japanese version to imply that this is Europe or something Europe-ish. And the look of it um, is, according to the Wikipedia, you know, it, it was uh, mostly based on stuff in Sweden. I've actually been... The city looks like Stockholm. Uh, a lot of the stuff in the countryside looks like Visby, which is um, on this in Gotland, which is an island in the Baltic Sea. I've been to both of those places. There, there's a there's a scene where she's walking down a street at one point that I, I pointed at and I said, I have been on that street. It's like I can tell what the references are. But it's also fascinating because it's like it, it, there's some some cognitive dissonance there. It's like, wait, I am used to seeing these Japanese animated movies about Japan. And that's not what this is. This is. This is I can't even know uh, what's the name of the of the bakery. It's like it's smor- Gudio Kipanja. Smorgasporkader, right? <laughs> but yeah, right. It's it's not it's not Japanese. All the writing is not. It's it's sort of fascinating how you you got to think about like how this was was playing for a Japanese audience. That you know that's all of the non Japanese writing is sending a signal that this is happening in in Europe. Um, so I thought, I thought that was, I thought that was really interesting too. It makes this feel very different in that way from, and it's storybook Europe kind of thing, storybook mid-century Europe, but it's definitely not like Totoro where you, you know, you're in Japan and this is about the Japanese countryside. Both settings are realistic in that in Totoro, like it's a house in the country and, oh, they yeah. have rice, and they have rice fields and that's what it looks like. And here, even though this is an amalgam kind of, it's like a composite character of, of European cities, but it is a real living city that is that is not the enemy, nor is it your friend. It's just a city where people work, where people do their things, and there are people who are curt to you, and there, there are, you know, strangers on the street, and there are people who are nice to you, and there are friends, and there are classes, and there's like, it is a, like it is an entire working city, and after watching this movie so many times, like I, I can't imagine any adult 
who wouldn't want to live in that city because it is idealized. <laughs> it is idealized to a degree. They have everything. They have the beautiful scenery. They have nice people. They have good bakeries. You could live in the woods and draw bakeries that deliver. Birds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. A, which is which is the deliver stuff. Yeah, yeah. Right. Not 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 bad. Well, that's and, and the part of Stockholm that it's modeled after is the old town in the center. Right. It, there's the whole city, and then there's the part where the tourists like me go and and say, "Wow, this is so quaint and beautiful." And that's what this movie is showing. Right. It's the beautiful villagey old right. European streets and things like that, and then and then beautiful countryside when we get out to where the uh, painter is going to paint Kiki, but definitely not naked. Yeah, the village definitely is. It has a vaguely Germanic feel, although Tombo's clothes are more flamingly gay Frenchmen, I think. Interesting. Well, I think they're going for Sweden or Denmark, but yeah, sure. It's Europe. Is, is, that, a, is that a Swedish look? I don't All know. All Europe. Well, I found at one point, one of the flags is like a yellow. It's one of those crosses like you see in in, uh, in the Scandinavian countries, but it's like yellow on purple. And I'm like... Call them, call them Epcot flags. What kind of those cr- flags we don't recognize. What kind of crazy flag is that? Well, when, I'm, when I have been in Scandinavia, it's like, okay, is this the yellow on the blue or is this the yellow on the red or is this the white on the blue i don't know because they're like and i'm colorblind too so it's like guys don't make everything an x or you know come on don't do that but um but purple yellow on purple i i'm confident is not an actual country that's the made-up country that kiki lives in apparently uh but so anyway when she when they get to the when she gets to the town she causes a traffic jam and almost an accident and uh and I noticed for the very first time that a bus zooms by her that is with the label Ghibli. Studio, Studio Ghibli, Ghibli on it. Yeah. That made me laugh. And then, uh, and then, and uh, Tombo um, uh, basically gets her out of trouble with the police by saying, "Help me! Somebody stole my something!" And and she runs the other way, which I I liked that moment of uh, you know she is. <sighs> She is a little desperate, right? I mean, she is trying to make it, and and you get that sense, like when it, later on when it's evening, you know, she needs to find a way. She tries to go to the hotel, and they're like, you know, what are you talking about? You don't have any identification. You're just a kid sitting silently with the uneaten sandwich. Yes, well, uneaten at, until at, until the cat eats. As the sun, <laughs> as the sun goes down, you don't need her to talk to the cat back and forth for an entire scene of dialogue. Oh, what are we going to do, Gigi? We I need some place to stay. Blah blah blah. You don't need to do that. You just need to have her sit there with her arms at her side, with food in front of her, her not eating it, and have the sun going down, and then just maybe have the cat say, "Kiki." And that's all you need. Yeah. You don't need to spell out what's going on. So all that desperation and the feeling when she when she has that moment where the cop is, you stay right here, and she's like, uh, I'm going to go this way. It's that. It's like she's, yeah, she should probably stay, right? But she's like, it's going to be complicated. It's going to ruin her chance. And it's, again, it's it's not a really nasty kind of she's desperate and needs to find a way to survive. But that's what's happening here is she's disobeying the police to do the this. thing she's worried about most with the cop is that he's going to tell her parents yeah yeah, yeah. She, you know? she wants to get on with her life she wants with this new life that she's dedicated herself to doing yeah and also not have her parents find out that she started a, a wreck also john you talk about the, <laughs> the the beautiful moments uh little tiny details that some animator somewhere spent the there's a moment where tombo is in in that scene where he reveals that he he cleverly made a diversion he um he's looking at her and riding his bike and almost runs into a garbage can yep. and has to adjust and go around the garbage can it's just like you don't it's amazing detail that's like that is detail of from a live action world but they animated the whole thing and you can feel you know again you can feel the physics of it you can see that he has to swerve and then he has to get back his bike back to straight and the he bumps the garbage can and it 
and it shakes. He bumps the garbage can, but he doesn't like he doesn't like Harpo marks it into the garbage can. <laughs> no, yeah, he's trying to he's trying to keep his composure. You know, I know it sounds silly, but it's like I, I'm still burning off you know 40 years of of watching American cartoons, and the, you know I get his little whoa, and it's it's funny and it's real, and then the movie goes on. And Tombo's interest in her. This is this is the you know like more cliches that we that this movie avoids that other movies. Tombo's interest in her is because she is flying. It's not wow, look at this gorgeous new girl that's flown into town. Like it, the in every other movie, the, the female's only worth is how is how nice she looks. And so the, the first, if you if there's some sort of something that happens at first sight, it's like wow, look at her. Like even in something like you know How to Train Your Dragon, where what's her name comes walking in slow motion with explosion behind her. Like the whole point is she is beautiful. And beautiful is is the way women are valuable, and therefore, and it, I mean that's fine for what it is. But like, the, in this movie, Tombo is interested in her because she can fly, literally fly, and he is obsessed with flying. And yes, he's obviously you know interested in her in kind of a boyfriend girlfriend kind of way as well. But that is not the plot of this movie. That's not how this movie is going to be resolved. It's not important to this movie. And he has a legitimate interest in her that that is based on something that she can do that he can't. He Which is, is in just so, the flying so club, for Pete's sake. The flying <laughs> yeah, club. Exactly. There's going like, to be a huge party at the flying club, the aviation club. Yeah, and I'm trying. Uh, the first couple times I saw this movie, I was lumping Tombo in with the rich kids. But now, if you wa- look closely, like he is, he's well off, but he's not like the giant house on the uh, the cliff overlooking the sea. Well off, like his, he lives in the sort of middle class part of town. Right. And on I think a cliff asp- overlooking the sea. He aspires yeah. well, they, to the... They all live on a cliff overlooking Well, I'm talking the about like the one where they bring the little toy cat, where that one is right. like, actually, I own this entire peninsula. Like that, <laughs> that type of thing. Or, or the fashion designer woman who is like, the fashion designer woman is not his mother, right? His mother is just a regular person. He's got a propeller on his bike. His friend's car is, is like, it's probably like a Rolls Royce, but a beat up Rolls Royce, like, you know, that his friends go in. So, yeah, there's there's definitely a class structure going on here. At this point of the movie, I I really like that uh, they don't make a big deal about the fact that she's a witch. I mean, it's just witches exist in this world, and people know about them. It seems like their influence may be fading, you know, at least in the big cities. But you know, the time frame is modern. It's like they, my grandmother have, told me, right? At least they have like electric ovens, you know. So it's not yeah. it's not it's, yeah, we're, we're not in work. long in the past when witches and talking cats still roamed the land, sort oh. of territory. <laughs> Now, there's Zeppelins and electric ovens, but there are also old ladies who are suspicious of the electric ovens. But that's, a, that's a good part in the beginning of this movie. Like, when this movie starts, you, you know from the posters or whatever that's going to involve a, a witch riding on a broomstick. But if you, like, my kids didn't see the posters. If you just bring a little kid into this clean and you see the mom making the potions and stuff like that, the movie has to eventually establish, like, the rules of the universe. And right up to the point where Kiki you know, straddles the broom to leave her house and her hair starts ripping like that, you're not sure what's up. You're like, well, there's witches and I guess they have dresses. It seems like a normal family and they were going to go camping and I guess the mom does potions or whatever. That's not a big deal. But then it's like, nope, she can actually fly and it's magic and it's dramatic and it's beautifully animated. And, you know, that is an exciting moment, I think, in the film for a little kid because... They don't know what the rule. If you don't show them the poster ahead of time, which you shouldn't, they don't know what the rules of this world are up front. And the animation of when she takes off is is beautiful and and wonderful and not at all mundane. Like the act of flight is acknowledged for what it is. Like this is amazing. And everyone who sees her do it, they're like, she just flew. Did you see? That? I mean, it's not like they shouldn't be. They're not falling over like they would be realistically speaking. But it is it is given credit as as a important impressive thing through the how how long they spend on it and how well it's animated 
the uh, I, I was I, I'm going to mention the bakery now, and I was trying to prep by uh, it's Gutio Kipanya. Oh, it's apparently pronounced Gucho Kipanya. Gucho Kipanya. Okay, sure. Which is, Fru- which is taken a- from rock scissors paper. Fusion Glaja. Hagen Daz. Kipanya is bakery. What they did in the dub, they called it Good Cooking Pan Bakery, which I thought was clever because they tried to try to get the same sounds into an English word. Uh, the I like um so so this all this all connects because uh for some reason a uh lady with a baby left the pacifier at the bakery. And well, a, let, let's talk about the first lady with the baby, massively pregnant Osano. Yes, well, that's what I was going to say. Is so, so a giant, huge pregnant lady comes out of the store and is like, hey, lady, you forgot your mom. <laughs> and so we meet Osano, yeah. So what were, in the 50s, like, I know they had the separate beds. With like, was it Ozzy and Harriet who had the separate beds, and then they had the beds together, and that was, someone had the beds. I don't know the history yeah, of, like, or, you know, on television. Lucy and but Ricky. Like, Lucy yeah. and Ricky, yeah. Yeah, I seem to recall that, like, saying the word pregnant on early television was somewhat frowned upon. And, like, in general, like, acknowledgement of the human reproductive process took a long time to come into live action television for adults in our country. Can you think of another cartoon that acknowledges human reproduction to the to showing a massively, I mean, maybe Tom and Jerry did it because they did a lot of raunchy stuff there of having him pretend to be pregnant at some point. I don't know, but like it's, she is a, like an, the people in this movie are stylized, right? But she's more or less anatomically only slightly exaggerated gigantic pregnant woman in in a cartoon for children and that shouldn't be impressive because that's how we all got here but so much of cartoons for children or any programming for children does not acknowledge how people come to be at all and this movie doesn't shy away from it and there it is and it's a very important part of the movie because she is one in a long line of potential role models for kiki which we should get to at some point listing those out uh and I think that is an important part of the movie that I'm I, I, it's sad that it's surprising or shocking. But this is one phase of one possible uh, phase of a woman's life. Also, let's not forget that in most movies, if you have a pregnant lady, her being pregnant is an important part of the plot. Because it's the why defining else, characteristic. Why else would she be pregnant? Is right. something's going to happen with her pregnancy? And you know what happens in the pregnancy in this? Nothing uh, he gives birth over the credits. There's uh, you see that she's now had a baby. Well, it's some in some respects it's important because that's why she needs a little help around the baby. Sure, sure, but I mean it's just not you. She could say, "Hey, I need some help around the bakery. Right. I've been meaning to hire somebody," but instead she's a giant pregnant lady. <laughs> when it's it's not emblematic of some uh, problem in her relationship. Or, or the source of tension with her, no. with her mate, <laughs> or, or the child is not a prophesied baby that will, that, will, that will bring the end of the world. That we know, John. That we know. Right. It's not. It's not going to be secretly. It's the king's baby, and there's nothing like that. One, one of the things I do notice is that only one of Gigi's cats, kittens. Yeah, is a black they, kitten, and that right. black kitten comes with him to learn, so that he can be presumably a kitten. Uh, or a black cat of a of a future witch, and I thought, ah, the baby will be the next gen. And I thought, no, this is not. I got to stop. But that All that means is Gigi is a horrible racist. He mates with a white puffy cat, and he's yeah, a black a... not puffy cat. Well, he, he, he just, goes he just the whole one, opposite way. Only one kid got his spastic genes. The other ones are nice and composed, and that one is the spaz chasing after the thread and falling off. Also, in this universe, the boy cats are all black and not puffy, and the, the girl cats are all white and puffy. I think that's Typical. what we Typical. what we learned. Small sample size. Yeah, those are the only cats we see, really. So I, I could be wrong. There. There's another cat actually on the the uh, the other witch's broomstick at the beginning. Oh, yes. appears to be female. Yes, they just see that cat. Black stuck stuck up cat. 
uh, with the stuck up witch. Yeah. So uh, so Asano has her role in the 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 uh, panoply of role models that are presented to Kiki throughout this movie. She's kind of in the middle here, and she's showing the possibilities of motherhood. This is one thing you can do as a woman: is you can you can give birth. She's a business owner. Yes. Uh, she's she's assertive. Uh, she is is not like as you mentioned not not sort of no pun intended cowed by her pregnancy. <laughs> she is <laughs> she's pregnant. She is pregnant, but continues to to do all the things that she does. She's also kind and charitable to Kiki, but also expects her to you know to to work and earn her keep. You know what she's I mean? Not, like, she's not just sitting in a rocking chair, like fanning herself and exhaling. <laughs> right, exactly. And and oh. even at the, even at the end of the movie, when she gives birth, she's standing on the hill with her head up to her, you know, shielding her brow, looking at Kiki flying through the air. And the husband has the baby and is feeding it. Right. So this is one possible future for Kiki. Uh, uh, up until that moment, are we even sure that he's her husband? Yeah, it took it took me a while to I figure that, that out. I didn't get that. That wasn't on. That was not on the screen. Baking assistant. <laughs> he's, a, he's a strong, silent type. Clearly, but but with I mean, a heart he's, of gold. He's, he's working there too. Like he's making sure. the, the two of them have a business together. Sure, I guess. Bun, bun in the oven. Get it? When two bakers love each other very much, Jason. Maybe, maybe he's just helping out at the end by feeding. Is that the how baby. it works? Is that there's a man and a woman, and then there's a baby? Is that? I don't know. I've never seen this in an that. animated film before. It's interesting, but you, you're right. In in a lesser film, the the thing at the end that that allows Kiki to fly again would have been you know the the emergency pregnancy, uh, <laughs> as as opposed to the Zeppelin, you know, which of course is far far. Oh, it, it does have a convenient timing because like they have as the movie's ending, we need to get her into labor, so she's like, oh, time to go, you know. Right, but I mean, yeah, it's still totally incidental. It just happens to happen at that point. It's it's not the focus of the film. Although she is still rather Zeppelin-like, come to think of it. Hmm. Yeah, I think she might have been the second. So the, fir- the first role model that enters Kiki's life, is the besides her parents when she leaves home, is the other girl on the broom who shows, like, at the end of your year of witch training, this could be you, you know, worldly wise, but also a little bit stuck up and full of herself. And she goes into a town that's smaller than the town that Kiki will eventually end up in. There's a difference in the dialogue between the English and the Japanese of, uh, as to whether Kiki, uh, like... Is this town big and impressive to Kiki? Does the stuck-up girl only think it's big and Kiki doesn't believe that or whatever? Uh, but this is she's seeing a potential of her future self and deciding perhaps that she doesn't want to end up like that. Whereas when she sees Osano, this is another possibility for her. She may not want to end up like that either, but it is a uh, a nicer possibility. Yeah, it's not. It's funny. It's like almost like um, you know, well, you can have one one witch in every town. It's like a mime. Or something. It's like we can have one of these in the <laughs> town. It's not really that like overwhelmingly weird. The thing that really differentiates her isn't that she's a witch; it's that she's a bumpkin. You know what I mean? And and she doesn't. And clearly, she's provincial, right? That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. She's a, she's a country mouse. And the uh, the witch with the green eyed cat has clearly she's figured out her trade and is very proud of having done that. And again, Kiki aspires that. Again, it's just all little bits of plot pushing it forward of like how much she really wants to succeed at this. She wants she wants to be a big kid. She's been waiting for this thing to happen. And uh, and I think that I don't know. I think that that they do a nice job of not overdoing that with her character, but it really well establishes that she's very motivated uh, to try and make it in this place, even though she has, she has no reason to think that she would succeed there. She's not swept along by the plot either. Every part of this movie, she is an active participant in making happen. She decides that she wants to leave, even though she had previously planned the next night. She decides it's going to be a clear night and a full moon. I want to leave now. She tries to take her broom, and like her mother asserts the last little bit of motherhood before she leaves. You know, like. She her actions drive this plot forward. Her decisions and her wanting to do things. She is not like 
suddenly caught up in an adventure that she's swept along in or whatever. She like, it, you know, comparing her to like kind of Bilbo who like has adventure thrust upon him. Mm. She makes all of these changes in her life happen, but through, through deciding to do something. If I were that helicopter dad, though, I mean, I guess maybe the cat's a familiar or something, but I would have really given her driving skills. I would have tried to talk her out of driving with a cat on the broom. Yeah, but you can, you can get back to me on on that how that goes once you teach your daughter how to drive and how 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 uh, accepting is she of your instruction? Well, she did at least listen to his admonition that she should make the cat tune the radio while she's driving. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's why the cat is there. Is the cat? I love is, that song. Does... That is such a great pop song. Which yeah. one? The, Eng- the English the one, one or the Japanese? The, the one? Japanese. Oh, one. the Japanese one. Yeah. Although I, I'm curious about what the theme song is saying, but I, it's got to be something that's totally on the nose. It's a very '50s sock hop kind of. Yeah, no, it's song. from. Isn't it from? I thought I read in the fact from that the it's 70s. actually a, actually a pop song from the '70s. Yeah, but the style the, the, the oh, style really? is a a '50s sock hop. Yeah, kind well, of I mean, song, right? in the '70s, and even Japan loves to make their own imitation versions of you know '50s American. And it's ah. about a woman who's going to tell her boyfriend's mother about him and get him in trouble and have him admonished. I think it's the thrust. What's it called? What's the song called? Rogue. What's it called? It's on YouTube. You can go and watch. I don't it, have a fact in front. Of me. What's the song like? The, the the song that they replaced it with in the previous one? Is it just? What's it like? In, mo- in most in most cases, I don't like when they replace a Japanese song with an English with an entirely different song because it's usually terrible. But the English songs in this one are not. They're not super terrible. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a. Like it's an incredibly generic happy disney pop right song, but, but they're not but they're not insulting yeah they're not insulting they're not no. like the, the the lyrics are not insultingly ridiculous right i'm actually disappointed that those that's a, that's an actual pop song i was i was totally thinking the lyrics were like along the lines of kiki's flying on a broomstick <laughs> and she has a cat they could be your now lyrics. she's over a town which is a place where people live she's encountering problems with weather and <laughs> other witches here come some seagulls. Watch out for the poop, Kiki. <laughs> Get your cat to turn the radio down, because here's another witch. But uh, yeah, guess guess that's not it. They are light with the exposition, Ladle. I appreciate that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying to imagine what the bridge of that song is about crows in some way. That's my guess. <laughs> <laughs> and they can memorize faces. And They'll they pick your eyes out. You, unless you're an artist who's learned to deal with them. Yeah, in those scenes, with speaking of the crows, like this is another thing in the in the grand tradition of Totoro, where again it, the the faces in this movie are Miyazaki faces. They are not realistic human looking faces. They're you know kind of in between. They're not they're not t- entirely cartoonish, but the animals are frighteningly realistic. Like the oh goat my god, in that Totoro, cow! That like cow the goat, is horrible. The cow. <laughs> yeah, the cow, the crows, the goat who wants the corn in Totoro, just like frighteningly dead on realistic, isn't that terrifying? <laughs> And, and again, it's like that's you know how would a little kid how how would a child see a bird squawking in your face? It would be terrifying. When do you see a bird up close like that? They're scary. They're little mm. dinosaurs. It's terrifying when you're an adult. I hate them. Hate birds. Ugh. And those those talons on that thing is it sort of scratching at her when she falls into the tree? That it really is very scary. All the so many of his faces. And now for some reason I keep thinking of Howl's Moving Castle, or uh, or. Uh, How's Moving Castle and uh, what's the one with mom and 
Castle in the Sky. Like, I love the straight on, it's almost like his Kubrick shot is a shot of somebody looking at the camera, looking extremely determined with their face set, whether that's somebody that's just got punched in the stomach, whether it's somebody that's trying to fly, somebody that it's, a, you know what I mean? There's, there's a certain kind of, I don't know if that's an anime thing or a Miyazaki thing, but uh, I, his, his characters are, are just imbued with, there's silence, but their faces just have so much purposefulness to them, you know? You don't get that with Fred and Barney. I'm gonna I'm gonna mention something that I noticed this time. I think that that I I haven't noticed before, which is when she gets when when Kiki goes with the 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 artist back to the woods to her artist's retreat with the crows. Sorry, crows. I, we got off on the wrong foot last time. I hope you don't peck my eyes out this time. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, Come to my cabin deep in the woods. I'll show yeah. you my etchings. Yeah, seriously, there is. She's a very the the artist is a very sensual person. Is what I'm saying. These l- boys don't have legs that look like this. So <laughs> at one point. Although it bothers me a little bit that she's basically a very tall May from Totoro. Oh, she's yeah. also kind of hot, and that makes yeah. me very uncomfortable. Yeah, that yes. makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, that, I was. She says these these legs. I'm like, or the boobs. You could have mentioned the boobs and not the legs. But okay, Th- this is not a boy you picked up here hitchhiking. And another one of Miyazaki's really big laughers. <laughs> you yeah. suddenly hear this explosion of laughter. I, out I of these love characters. that. I love that take though. When it when it's somebody, I'm thinking very seriously about this, and I said something very serious. Long pause, and then <laughs> I love that. That is so great. Actually, I realize that's an anime trope, but that's one yeah. thing that actually sort of bothers me because there's so much realism in these movies, and then that just that that kind well, of pulls me out of it. It's when tamped down a little bit, huge... like like it works in the scene, like for example, where the, where the the propeller bike crashes, and like, oh, yeah, are you okay? Yeah. Like that is a place where there is tension. Yeah. You're worried, but then once you see everyone's okay, there is a release. And no, that part's great. That part's realistic. That's just, how I felt about the, occasional... the scene with the artist too, because I felt like that was Kiki being very serious, and the artist is like totally deflates her, and it's like, no, it's fine. You know, that's you're worried about too much. Too much. Well, there. there's a bit earlier, though, when she has the flu and she asks if she's going to die. And the, oh, the, yeah. the response back is, ho, 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 yes. ho, 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 yes. Well, ho, I was just ho, laughing ho. at a little kid. You know, the kid cracks you up when they say something. Like, most adults are better at holding it in. Like, when your yeah. kid says something cute and, and silly like that, you don't yeah. laugh right in their face. But Osana was very later. gregarious. At home. It's, just, no, it's just so over the top. Right. It kind of takes so, me out of it a So little. what I was going to say, we were talking about faces. Um, it looks to me like when the the artist is sketching Kiki's face— that we see more detail in the sketch of a human yeah, face than the actual faces are in the movie. Yeah, because they're because they're stylized, and you don't need yeah. that many lines to like. That's the that's the economy of the Miyazaki faces. They're um, able to imbue such incredible emotion with so few lines. Like that's the artistry of it. And when she draws it as a sketch, you're like, we don't. You know, you see all these details. You're like, whoa, where's that coming from? It's like you don't need those yeah. details. Yeah, we really. don't see that level of resolution. If you live in this world, you see the full resolution of people, but we we don't see that. So I thought that was so really what's, cool. what's what's her name? Ursula, right? Ursula, this, yeah, the, the artist. Right. So she she is another possibility for Kiki's future. Saying, yeah, he is an independent woman living on her own, uh, you know, chasing her artistic muse, yeah, chasing her dream, uh, self sufficient, uh, confident, uh, a little bit eccentric, able to indulge in her eccentricities and and unique, but you know, and not living in the city, living outside the city, but occasionally traveling into it. And she comes in a little bit like a bumpkin with her straw hat and her big backpack too, but that's okay, and. Uh, the scenes they have with her is another section of the movie where it's like, cut all this out. Why is this here? Uh, getting on the bus with her, hurry up, the bus is late. 
walking onto the bus, sitting in the back of the bus and getting to share some candy. Has Kiki ever had candy before in her life? We don't know. Bubblegum, does she even know what that is? Passing over the little gumballs, eating them, walking up the really big hill, getting to the top of the really big hill, turning around and looking at the, at the town below you. Like, there's like seven scenes in there. And you're like, what's going on in this? I know they're traveling back to her house. Cut to her house. We need to have a dialogue that brings, no, this is the movie. Like this, this trip back with this woman is what, is what this entire movie is about. It's, you can't, you can't cut that out and just bring them right to the cabin where they can have a conversation. And even when they get to the cabin, it's like, they talk about her losing her magic. So I guess that's a plot point, but <laughs> the movie is happening when they're, when she's getting the gumballs in the bus, the movie is happening when, when the bus mm-hmm. is pulling away and it's viewed out the window and the bus lurches and you can see the scenery go up and then down. Like that, that's this movie for me, all those parts. Well, as long as we're going outside the, um, the <laughs> getting a little genetic, I, you know, I was reading up a little bit and it makes it sound like the, the, uh, people can read this on Wikipedia, but there, there were some travails with taking this original book. Uh, there wasn't a director attached to it for a long time. Miyazaki was busy with Totoro, and they were trying to decide what to do with this. And apparently the, the book is a pretty, I don't want to say straightforward, but it's episodic. Like, here's a story. Here's another story. Yes. They're all in parallel. They're mostly, it sounds, kind of independent, like an Encyclopedia Brown kind of thing. And then uh, and, and, and Miyazaki introduced, is the one who, when he attached himself to it as director, is the one that added uh, the whole ending. That, that brings it all together. But originally, I guess, did you guys get that? That, that it was basically just a bunch it was, of... It was shallower. It was a kid's story with ep- with a character who's a witch who delivers things and she can have various adventures that are shallow sure. in nature. And, and Miyazaki turned it into a coming-of-age story, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and so we get some of the episodic stuff with, like, the heavy package and all of that. and the Oh, and the whole the thing with, with, with Kiki and that, that awesome dog. When, when, uh, Isn't when that Kiki dog great? The, I love Jeff that Jeff. I, I love find Jeff the dog the sort dog. of depressing, frankly. <laughs> well, the whole family—the whole family's talking about how he's basically one one foot in the grave, yeah, he's maybe an old two. Dog. But he, but he's smarter than they think he is. That's right. He's, he's a good dog. Of, he moves slowly. Gigi. That's well in the in the in the isn't in the um, subtitle version. Isn't it like that amazing dog? That fantastic dog. <laughs> that that fabulous dog. Something like that. Yeah. He he. They take him. They underestimate, the family does, Jeff the dog. And just because he's slow doesn't mean he doesn't know exactly what's going on. And he, you know, he rescues Gigi from the... Yeah, they do some nice from, style from animation Bobby Hill. there. Because yeah. when, when Gigi is pretending to be a toy, they make him, you know, comically toy-like and stiff. And then when, when Jeff, like, puts him down on the ground, he's a real cat again and runs away like a real cat. Right. You know, it's, it's but that's like the doggiest dog ever. It was so great the way it would so gently... <laughs> it, really lo- it really looked like a dog. Now, I don't want... I got. I got to jump in here. The okay. So so Gigi. Uh, let me just ask: Is is for practical purposes? Is Gigi really talking to Kiki? Is Gigi in this case talking to Jeff? Is it doesn't matter because like I, I this is the first time where I watched it where I thought I got a little bit a uh, little bit sixth sense with it and I was thinking maybe Gigi doesn't really talk. Maybe that's all just in Kiki's head. And then the uh, two versions. No, you he. Think, he, I, I he think talks he, really to, talks. he he definitely well first off he definitely talks to other animals. I think that's I think that's sort of assumed in this is that the animals all can talk to each other. And that's not just Kiki and we don't hear that. them talking to each other. But because right. he relays he's like well I talked to this and then with the dog we see it. Early on there's a scene where um at least in the subtitle um there's an old an old woman I think who says something like Oh well, he said this, and I think it's referring. I wish I had written it down. I think it's referring to Gigi, and I was like, "Aha! I think this is implying that some people can hear the cats." 
hmm. some you know old cat ladies and witches <laughs> can hear the cats when they talk. Scrapbookers. Uh, yeah. I just got the impression that she 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 um she could understand the cat only as long as she needed to understand the cat for his assistance, as she's kind of coming into the world and and growing up. And at the at the point where she suddenly has sort of made the transition into, but that's not when he stops talking to her. He stops talking to her when she loses confidence and she loses her powers and her ability to fly. Not when she becomes a success. But she's lost her confidence because she's the reality of her situation and the fact that she's kind of alone in the big world has come to her. Well, that's so. My theory, and I think I've said this on past shows, is that when she loses her magic, is essentially her hitting puberty. Like, yep, you're gonna go all the way into yep. like, you know, she got her period. That's that's what I was wondering. That's what I was thinking. Actually, one hundred percent. Like, what? That's what it's a stand-in for. She's where, tired. Like, she wants to lay down. It's it, because like it's you know it all comes to a head at that point. It's like childhood is ending, and here is your here is your outward biological sign of that. And it's her treatment of Tombow should have been a dead giveaway. <laughs> and and now it all comes to a head, and you have to realize there's no going back. You have to figure out this new world. You have to what it is that's making you upset seeing those rich kids. What it's making you feel like you don't fit in, and or do you just have to work? But some people don't have to work, but you do. But then what? What you know, like. All those things, and those things are all happening in her head. She is not dramatic about it. She is not writing in her diary and and bawling constantly and screaming at people. It's all like, and it's, I think, so so much more realistic and more affecting that way. And that's when she she starts to lose her magic stuff. And what the first thing she does is she she tries to regain it running down the hill like i gotta i gotta get it back i got it like and you can't you can't go back that way you can only you can only go forward and trying to tie Gigi into that whether it's the japanese Gigi or the or the uh you know phil hartman one i don't think either one of them ties in that well because like it, it, you know so what we're saying is in the american one when she gets her powers back at the end she can hear phil hartman again yeah and in the japanese exactly. one she she can't hear phil she can't hear Gigi again she just sounds like a cat and in and the, the 2010 version be, of the disney dub he does you don't hear phil yeah, hartman he's gone end. yep he doesn't say meow <laughs> he doesn't <laughs> no. say that no, <laughs> no right. so, but, but see like i don't cat-like. think i don't think that's integral because i think all you all you need to know is that she has come through the other side that she's got her her magic power her, you know she is she is you know it's self-actualization that she's come through that and, and whether she still needs the cat to be there or not i don't think it's that big of a deal because even in the japanese one she's not leaning on the cat and he's not like her id or her ego out there talking he's just kind of there as part of the movie but it's not a big inter- like the two of them are not a team he is the wide cracking sidekick you know? yeah even right. yeah even in the japanese one he is not like integral so they they didn't connect gg to her in a way that it ma- that it makes him symbolic of something that she has to leave behind i don't think in the japanese one i agree i agree with you i think i think it's actually kind of weird to see that connection because i i don't yeah i don't we're left sort of wondering well why does he stop well gg talking again at the end i you know i i it sounds non-canonical but i mean that makes it a lesser <laughs> movie to me for for him to be heard again you know what I mean? Uh, we, but we don't know the rules of the universe, getting back to whether he's talking or not. We don't know if the rules of the universe are as described in the thing of like, well, you know, it's not not witch magic that lets her hear him. It's actually because they were raised together or whatever. Like, well, like the you know, like, sort of like think, a... think of the dust mites in, in Totoro, 
But where... that's a different universe where, like, this universe, we're established that adults can see and accept magical things. Where in mm. Totoro, that is never established. In Totoro, there is no adult saying, and there's a witch flying by, and we all see and acknowledge that, yes, there are such things as witches, and yes, they can fly. Like, the rules are clearly established that magic is part of this realistic world. Now, whether the cat fits into that, I don't know. But, like, in Totoro, that's all, like, you could say, you know, no adults have pay any attention to that. That could all be in their heads and it perfectly fit. So I feel like once you have a, a world where witches are flying around, Talking Cat is not out of the question at all. Well, but as, as sort of tentative as the relationship between Kiki and Gigi is, the fact that he stops talking at some point clearly feels like, well, this is because she's transitioning, she's growing up. And at the end, for him to come in and speak again, it just feels like, you know, oh, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't make the kitties It makes it a different movie. It's a different I, movie. I don't, I don't agree because I think that she, she, again, I feel like the shutdown of his voice is when she loses confidence. And so the way I read this is she's, she, she's not um, losing – she doesn't lose the ability to fly. She loses it temporarily, and then she gets it back. And those two things happening simultaneously, to me – I think I connect them and I say this is not, you know, the world has gotten to her and she's never going to hear the cat again, but she's going to be able to fly again. How is that that she gets the one and not the other? So well, for she me, gets it back because she's grown as a person and now she's 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 flying for her own internal inspiration. It all depends on why you think she could hear the cat in the beginning. Of the movie. Right. If you think she could hear the cat because it was part of her witch's powers, then you feel like she when she gets her powers back and gets her comments about she'd hear the cat. But if you if you think that she hears the cat when she's younger because it's just a way that young it's sort of like the Todoro, like a way young people comfort themselves with something imaginary and suddenly she finds herself growing up to the point where she's like, "You know what? I don't believe in Santa anymore." And all of a sudden the cat is just a meowing thing, then you don't want her to hear the cat at the end because that would be a regression. Right. And that's why I think we're Merlin's coming from. I thought. I thought the. the <laughs> I can't believe. I'm thank pro God, cats. Thank God for four years of college. I. I. Uh, I, I felt like it was in like an imaginary friend that, but was an imaginary friend that was we- real, kind of, and then and then went away. That's called a, a friend, point. Merlin. A friend. Which one am I? An imaginary friend that is real is a friend. <laughs> oh, that's. I think that's that's a that's oh, a contra- contradiction yes, in terms. Our topic yeah, to me, tonight you know, on to Debate Club with... is is the cat. <laughs> <laughs> the real, does the cat really talk or not? With that's the whole nice. movie, though, basically being her growing up, it, to me, it felt like she gets her flying back. That's good. There are some things, you know, that you can maybe revisit as you get older. And there are some things that will never be the same again. And to me, the cat was one of those things that, you know, that's just how it's how it is now. You're not going to be able to hear cats anymore. But, yeah, but it, sh- it shouldn't be because she no longer has the magic ability. It has to be because... The cat was never talking to her, and it was just the, something that children do to play pretend to comfort themselves during her transition. That's why it was so shocking when, you know, why are you just meowing? Why are you talking right. like a cat? And it's like the cat right. has always been talking. There's never been a Santa. You just you didn't know that. Or it could simply be that when she was young, she had a need to understand what the cat was telling her, and now she doesn't. Here's what I would say. She can't. She shouldn't lose the ability to hear the cat and fly at the same time. They should. They they're too much in sync, and there's Models an implication the that they happen yeah. at the same time. It would be better if she can still talk to the cat, and then at the end, when she has grown up and succeeded, and he has his cat family and all of that, that may, maybe then she can't hear him anymore, and it's a sign that she's grown up. But because they happen simultaneously, you're in this weird part where it's like, you know, why did why did these two things happen, and does she get both? My my logic in that situation is she gets both of them back. But there's a later. there's a third there's a third part to this that I, I hope we can semi agree uh, as part of what makes this so great is that you know in in a lot of other movies that were told in this way with this style with this story it would have been something that tacitly said 
Uh, she's okay. So then there's the we should also point out the wonderful inversion of that 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 heartbreaking scene where she can't fly. She's looking up at the sky and she sees the zeppelin going yeah. by with Tombo in it, and it just it perfectly encapsulates a certain feeling of being 13 years old. I mean, and 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 losing your mojo. But isn't it kind of great? <laughs> Rogue zeppelins are encompass my my 13 year old self perfectly. You don't know where that zeppelin's going. You don't know how inflated the zeppelin's going to be. It may run into things. There might be a little kid dangling. Wait a second. Sometimes it's pointing up at weird angles. Sexual desire, like not sure why. (laughs) Yep. You don't know. It's like snow. And then you fly into the clock tower and deflate and land on a building. How many inches or how long? But the um the uh but the thing is, it's kind of cool though that they don't really hit the accelerator on the whole like oh she's saving a man and it's the love of her life and that you know I, I didn't get that out of this and I love that I you yeah. know because you could sew that all up way too tightly where it's like oh now she's discovered <laughs> like she's got to go save a boy and that now oh you know Mazel Tov now she's a real yeah, and the post credit sequence would be their wedding but it is not their wedding it's their flying club <laughs> she's out there on the broom flying they're all flying it, it, the 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 prize at the end is that she gets to be a, a, a person in society with friends. Yeah, she's finally integrated. You are getting married now, married now. <laughs> well, that, that's throughout. I mean, that, that's one of the fascinating things that it rings so true. It, it's, it defies all logic and, and right. yet simultaneously rings true, which is that scene where she they, – they've survived their ridiculous uh, bike propeller incident and um, – and they're laughing, and then the kids in the car drive up. And he, he's buddies with them. He's buddies with her. He thinks this is all going to be fine. And she's like, I'm out of here. Right? Yeah, and, then she, and then she goes back, and she, she plants herself. And this is – she's she, – it is – this is – I mean, this is being a teenager, right? It's, she is amazingly lonely. And yet when given the option to be yeah, involved yeah. in this, she, she's like, no way, and walks away. To be, she's walking away from people and then being sad that she's alone, which is so illogical and yet so completely true. That's a good movie, and you know, it's a thing. There's, there's so many like these, these kind of money shots in a Miyazaki movie. One of the things is, I think you have to make your peace, and and I think John's put this very well in the past. Is that, and probably in better words than this, but that you have to make your peace with the fact that there's going to be stuff that comes up in these movies that's never really fully explained, and and there's never, you know, you could sit there and you could have these Talmudic debates about it, but a big part of what makes these kinds of music. Uh, these movies so magical and again I'm thinking of Howl I'm thinking of Castle in the Sky I'm thinking about all these movies or uh, God Princess Mononoke they'll just be these things that happen a certain way and that's that's just how it is but it's you know how the characters react to that and I don't know that makes it that makes it so great and, and keeps it to, to to use that word that's so overused magical like why did that happen we don't know why it's a movie yeah I love that the big probably the biggest single blow to Kiki at least in the middle part of the movie is she goes through all the trouble to uh to make the the dreadful sounding herring and pumpkin pot pie. Oh man, for with grandma. grandma. She goes out and fishes out the firework and stokes up the old brick oven and and cooks the thing up and puts in all this work and then there's the whole panic where she has to go in the rain and probably the worst blow to her is the fact that in the whole film is the fact that she gets there and the girl says, I hate grandma's pies and slams the door in her yeah. face. And that and it's, was it's, a, another two role models for her. The old right. widowed woman who lives by herself, but has, still has a certain dignity well, and lives with, lives with her friend slash lullaby Bertha. Right. <laughs> so she's got, right. And the horribly and, twisted lady that loves footage of Zeppelin right. crashes. And, and, oh, I love and, her. And t- says, I'll take your broom dear. So she can go down the hallway and pretend to ride the broom. She's wild about lighter than air travel. Uh, she's she's this back is to terrible. 
That was a great scene where she's where she's caught on the broomstick. Again, they don't yeah. show her sneaking over there or whatever. They just cut to her. And what is she doing? She's on the broom pretending to be a witch. Yep. But so then her granddaughter, it's the same girl that she saw, the same rich girl that they saw in Tombo's group of friends. And, you know, she gets... Right. Well, she sees her later. And that's I think that's really what kills her at the end when, when uh, he calls her over and she realizes that that's the girl who was so horribly ungrateful after all the work that her grandmother And she's in. all beautifully dressed up and it's her birthday party and there is a party and she's not going to be going to one because she's drenched now and the, right. the girl is, is uh, ungrateful. And this is all like at that moment, she feels like her lowest of low. But later on, the, you know, the sort of the snootiness of that girl or the girl's, un- spo- she's spoiled, she's unappreciative. That's what one of the things that brings Kiki around to understanding. I don't want to be that girl. Like that's that's one of that you know. The, there's females in every single age range that she encounters. She encounters female after female after female from from ones her age to ones slightly older to you know the Ursula. It's like they've got the entire age range of, of women mapped out, and every one of them Kiki's looking at. And and again, you never see this movie. Talk about it. you don't see a movie with female protagonists. And even if you do see it, the, the female protagonist is in a world of men. And this shows a, a, a girl. And what she sees in the world is all the other women, because that's what she's trying to figure out. Who am I going to be? What am I going to be like? She's not going to look to the men to figure this out. And, you know, it's so shocking to us because every single one of our movies is man and about men in a world of men and women as accessories. Or or, or it's about or it's about showing up that bitch. Like, that's the other thing. If you're going to no, no, if you're going to have a movie with women in it, there's going to be this central working girl thing where you've got to have this 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 big tension between the underdog that we love and this haughty person who needs to be brought down because they're making this person feel bad. And and that that is used for the amount of effect that's necessary here. But then it doesn't turn into something where they're doing like a, you know, uh, death becomes her kind of one upmanship. In fact, the reaction that Kiki has is not what I expect from her. Right. So she goes to all this trouble goes through the rain with this terrible herring and pumpkin pie with a picture of a fish on it <laughs> and and she's like oh i hate grandma's pies and she closes the door closes the door and instead of kiki being like boy you know what what an awful person that was she says wow i can't believe she's related to that nice lady i love that that is so great yeah. because that's what that's she's not personally offended she feels bad for for granny that's who she feels bad for like right. she's so nice and this person is not but she feels also like lower than low, like the, the sure. class the disparity because she's the delivery girl. Mm-hmm. She's drenched. She's and the well, she doesn't like her robe, right? Is, her robe is, is unfashionable. Yeah, it's just and she tries like she's so hard. It's like, oh, but it's wet now. It's like oh, I, I work really hard. The, the food came through. OK, you know, give it a try. Like she's so she's so good, Kiki. And like and she's she's forced to, to do all these things. It's just, you know. And uh, Jason, you mentioned before, like how you're alone, and when invited, you you turn down the invitation, and then you feel alone. It's they had a similar scene like that, which also rang true to me early on in the movie, where Tombo gives her the invitation, says Miss Witch on it. Yes, and in in English in the movie, yeah, getting an invitation to be, to go to a social event is like the most terrifying thing that could happen to her. And sure. she immediately runs to her her current mother figure and says, "It's not so much that like I have to deliver this, that I have to deliver that. The invitation is the crisis. Yes. I've been invited to a party. I have no idea what I'm going to do." And I've seen that play out. Like, you know, that's Oh yeah. That that is the that is the crisis. And you know, and like, what do you mean you know what it is? This is exactly what you wanted. Didn't you want to have friends? It's like that's not how it works when you're 13 yeah. years old. <laughs> that's right. By the way, my favorite detail in the movie is during that scene where she's completely soaked and she lands at the the big house to deliver the pie. And you can tell how soaked she is because her humongous bow is suddenly obeying the laws of physics. (laughs) Whole rest of the film, it's gigantic. And and in this one scene, it's just drooping around the top of her head. It's a magic bow. Water's pouring out of it. It's, It's wonderful. 
Yeah, and Osano, her surrogate mother figure, fulfills that role as well in that after this all happens and after this disaster has gone out and Osano knows that it's been a disaster and knows also knows enough to stay away, Osano's next move in orchestrating Kiki's life from a distance in a motherly way, but not too heavy-handed, is to send her to deliver something to Tombo, the boy who waited right. for her for a while. Right. Uh, in, in a reasonably clever way, and basically, you know, she's taking bread from her own bakery and paying Kiki to deliver it to him and setting up that, uh, you know, that encounter. Well, first she feeds oatmeal and honey, scalding oatmeal and honey to a cat. <laughs> right. She warned him. She said it was hot. I mean, what more do you want? Well, obviously he can't understand her. So, Or he's a cat. He just can't help himself. But you, don't, you don't say don't burn your tongue and then hand, you know, a bowl of scalding yeah. milk to an animal with a brain the size of a thumb. <laughs> it's just... Even if, if it could, could talk. She's she not, know not done. Okay. Um, Zeppelin. Oh, the, so the old ladies. I like they. She goes back to the old ladies. I thought that the old ladies thing was going to be over, but instead, they uh, they bake her a cake with the that Kiki was, official that was so sweet. official Kiki logo. And was that a was that a bread Kiki that the baker lady had put in the window? Uh, the, the baker husband did it because remember, that's baker the other husband. scene. Oh, right? okay. So she, when she's away, she's supposed to be coming back for the party, right? And what you see is the husband pacing back and forth. Because, he's the one who's and, worried. And, and, yeah. and at first you think it's because he's worried about her, which he is. And that, I mean, his, he says like two lines in the movie, but his character is fully revealed by the things they have him doing. And the second thing is that you realize that he's the one who made the big bread Kiki sign, and mm-hmm. he's excited for her to see it when she, when she comes back. And so right. when he sees that she's coming, he runs and hides because he doesn't want to be there when she comes. Like, he's too embarrassed that I made this for you, but he's excited about her seeing it. And so when, when she sees it and looks at it, he casually strolls in like, well, no big deal. I just made a thing for you. And she jumps on him and gives him a hug. All no dialogue, all happening through a window from an outside shot. Completely amazing. You wouldn't even see that in adult live action films. They'd be like, what's going on there? I don't understand. Like, watch the movie. Everything is yeah. there. It's right. in the movie. Just watch the movie. There's an airship at the end. Oh, I just, I love the fact that, uh, you know, this dirigible has been forced to land there. And apparently the entire town has gone dirigible crazy. Yes. We see it on the TV in the bakery, and the two old ladies are watching it. As you That's do. It's the, the 50s. Rigid airship madness. It was the Is time. it the 50s? I never really got a grip on what the time frame yeah, well, like from the If you look at the cars, that's more or less the era that's supposed to be. Yeah, and the and that 70s pop song that sounds like it's from a sock hop. But, you know, I love a good Zeppelin movie. I have to admit, I do love that. And I, I it is strange because there's this, the, the opening line of dialogue in the movie is like, and the airship might be passing overhead or it might not. <laughs> All right. Okay. And uh we get the we get an exciting airship scene where there is actually it does damage to the to the buildings, of course. The most uh noticeable building in town gets hit by the uh hit by the airship. Um I find it funny that everybody is really worried about Tombo who is dangling from the airship, but not worried about the entire like cabin crew <laughs> full of people who are also on the airship the crew's fine we're yeah. fine we'll be fine certainly they're safe because they're inside the like you know the thing yeah but if it smashes somebody's ever building, died on a zeppelin well, it's, uh, yeah i'm sure it's fine it's, it's not like it's not like the zinc paint caught on fire there is a nice line that it that is it we're full of helium so it won't explode it's like it's not going to be like a hindenburg thing if we die it's going to be because we smashed into something like the ground 
<laughs> but but there's, a, there's a bit at the end where uh, she's saved Tombo, and you can see them in there in the cabin. They're still up there. They're like clapping, Yay! and they're all excited and celebrating. It's Meanwhile, like, they're hanging between two high buildings. Well, yeah, you, you expect almost like the, it, that Italian job moment where it's like, okay, uh, I've got a plan. <laughs> but I know how we're going to get out of here. It's like, I don't know, slowly <laughs> let, allow it to deflate and hope that it dr- just kind of sags and drops oh, see, they're, them they're down, out of or? combat at that point so they can just kick in the skull oh, that's, and... that's that's good that's good good D knowledge yeah, there Steve. that's right i imagine the kiki would then like go up and shuttle them down bit by bit or something maybe it still really... doesn't seem like she's got a real grip on that push broom at that point though. well that's a, she would have to get a bet much better broom that was just a broom that was available to her but she still got it at the end in those yeah. ah, what a great sequence yeah, yeah. when those when it's it's silent she's on the broom it's silent and then there's like you know the 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 Miyazaki silence followed by the the sound the the bristling. It's like uh, what oh yeah, where where moment. it comes to life basically. Yeah. Like it's got and that it, yeah, she, right. She, she, fly she yells and... "fly," and you expect her to you know skyrocket in perfect formation. Instead, she slams into the nearest building, right. and balls off bounces off another one with Just her like foot, pushes off with her foot. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and it's they do great. they do silence again because they have the crowd going. Oh, you know the crowd noise going on and the announcer and everything like that, and all that fades out as Tombo falls and as she catches them. So yeah. that the the climax of the movie, they fade everything out, including the background cacophony of crowds that you didn't realize was was there until they turn it off, which is the best way to use. The one thing you do here is catches. is her making her connecting with his hand as she grabs, and that's right. all you hear, which yep. is great. So here's here's something that my son noticed that I have never really thought about in all of my times watching this movie, but this t- today he noticed it, which is as soon as she as soon as she catches Tombo and saves him, everybody cheers. And there's like confetti or a ticker tape parade everywhere. And he's like, why is there confetti? Where did that come from? And I'm like, I have no idea. In, in this town, they always have it ready. They have it ready. It's like the fireworks. <laughs> it's like the fireworks at the end of Return of the Jedi, oh. where it's like, well, you know, normally we don't shoot off fireworks here on the from moon the of Endor. The, the X-Wings have it. It's just but a we've got it. the side. In case something good happens, we've got some fireworks to fire off. But it's the sign of the big city, man. It, well, it, either it's confetti or it's like really light rubble from the buildings. Maybe they were ready to celebrate this. They were ready to celebrate the Zeppelin. Maybe. And, right. and there Maybe they go. had to, yeah. Those are shreds of the cabin crew's shirts. They're trying to fashion a rope to get down. No, it crashed. The Zeppelin crashed into a building that had lots of paperwork, and the paperwork got shredded and blown out, and there that was go. landing. Well, it's what well, makes it, the movie magical. Wasn't this magical. movie in the 80s? Wasn't this movie made in the 80s? 89. 89. Right, so like, it's like at the end of War Games, someone has to throw paper in the air at the end yeah. of every 80s movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, watch for that. There was sudden, sudden celebratory confetti. You get a letter from the MPAA. There's a couple questions we have about the denouement. We like to see a little bit more paper thrown in the air. And the other, the other standard, speaking of standards, is that in Miyazaki movies and in eighties movies, uh, in particular Miyazaki movies, you have to have an incredibly heartwarming and affecting sequence that the credits roll over. Right after they throw the yep. dean in the pool. <laughs> no, not the same. Not the same at all. Like I'm always amazed at, at the. Credit, they like, do drop a police car in a pool. Like, Isn't that good enough for you? That's pretty awesome. And the, they have your badge. About, and the details of the wave going over the side of the deck. And oh yeah. Well, the best bit is the one person that's so still good. in the pool that you see just kind of slowly moving away from yeah. the splash zone. No detail is too small because some guy spent three weeks on that. And then at the end, we get the letter back to her parents that we were promised at the very beginning her mother still if distracted will have one of her test tubes explode with black smoke and uh, she gets the letter saying i'm fine i'm doing okay we discover that it takes roughly three days to rebuild a clock tower (laughs) sure there are very industrious people look at the town that's right they had a spare. Actually, all that confetti was just rubble from them already trying to fix up the mm-hmm. tower. 
there were already people it up was, there on it was the results it was the actually the wrapping of the new tower that had already been fixed at that point <laughs> that's, the mayor had just cut the ribbon it was that fast that's right while tombo was falling that all happened now, think, <laughs> think about these movies that have the credit sequences what would the movies be like if they didn't have the credit sequence like if the movie actually ended and they just showed names over black and that was it like how would how would you feel about the movies differently if you know Totoro? I mean, Totoro has a, a smaller one. This one has one. A, a, a whole bunch of the, the the. I mean, I think Castle in the Sky has one as well, or maybe it's just the pre credits. But anyway, I always feel like that that part of the movie is a shorthand way to give you a satisfying ending, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't work if you cut it out. But you don't have time to do everything that's in the credit sequences. It's like it's almost like cheating with like a montage. Like we don't want to show a montage, and we don't want to have some silly scene where they exchange two lines of dialogue that we established. But we just want to show like, and this is what happens in the immediate future of these characters, uh, in a way that doesn't feel weird. Because if you tried to rush it in or tried to have multiple endings, it wouldn't work. But I think everybody like buys in on the the credit sequence, like. Who doesn't like that? Whose heart is not warm by seeing that sequence in the credits? And you don't go like, that ending of the movie was weird. I thought they rushed it at the end where they tried to show what happened to the characters. It should have just ended it. Like, no one ever feels that way. I don't know why more movies don't use this. I guess Marvel movies accepted, but... It's like the animation equivalent of that uh, that whole Animal House thing. You know, Dean Wormer went to prison where he was repeatedly... But it's, but it's not that ham-fisted. Like, because they're not, like... Like, the things they're seeing aren't essential to the story, and you're not wondering what happened to him. You just want to be like... Because you already know Kiki's going to be okay. But you also want the payoff scene of seeing but her. It, but it lets you be very economical with cutting it off when the story's done. And right. in the case of, like, with Totoro, it's a little, little bit more luxurious. But in this case, when when you see her dashing along on the broom and the credits come up, you're like, wow, that was that was really... That's, they, that's that, the end, movie's huh? over. That's it. That was... I think it's great. I think they could they could probably have avoided that by making the ending a little less abrupt, but... Well, I mean, like, Asano gives birth. We know she gives birth. We know she goes into labor. We assume everything came out okay, but just in case you're wondering, here's Asano. She's thin now. Here's the baby. Here's the dad. They're happy. They're watching Kiki. They know she's happy. Like, it's all the things that you want to know are are a reality after the movie ends that you can assume they are, but they give you the payoff. Like, here you go. Here's a picture of her and the baby. And you know this is, this is what happened anyway, but just seeing them makes you happier than just be thinking, I bet she had the baby now, and I bet that's wonderful. Especially with Totoro, where you, I mean, the, the, the genius stroke, of course, is showing, you show, show the family, you show them, then you show the Totoros, and then you show the implicit kind of interaction of them, too. You know, it's, it, the, the, I think that's particularly delightful in Totoro. Well, that one's critical, because you have to have mom came home somewhere. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the, the first thing in the sequence, is her coming out of the cab or whatever with her arms wide open and the kids running towards her. Like, you know, that's... I'm that's, gonna get well! Yeah, that's the payoff of the whole movie. And, and so in this one, another sequence here, like earlier on in the movie, Kiki is looking at shoes in the window, shoes that she can't afford while she's in the city, and she just sits there staring at them for a while, and I think like some people come by behind her or whatever. And in the credit sequence, she's still staring at shoes in the window, which is showing that, yes, there are still going to be things that you want that you can't have mm-hmm. because you don't suddenly become the richest, most powerful princess in the entire world and you get everything you want. But while she's staring at the shoes... One of the people who passes by her is a mother with a little girl, and the little girl is dressed like Kiki, the hero of the town. Right. Now. And she, her head turns, and she's like, whoa, you know, that's, that's a, quite a complicated payoff uh, of, like, they don't show her, and now she's got those red shoes that she wanted. Nope, she's still at the window looking at the fancy shoes, but also she's admired and looked up to by the little girls, and they're dressed like she is. That is fairly, <laughs> that's a fairly complicated thing to put into a kid's movie for a kid to unpack, but I think that, like, gets through to them. I think Kiki would be a great Halloween costume for a 12-year-old girl, by the way. Big or bow. boy, for that matter. Sure. Big bow. There's really not that much girly about it. Big bow, uh, big uh, 
dark robe, you know, broom, that's, black That's one hat. of those last second throw together kind of, but still a good <laughs> costume. Doable. Costumes. Everybody would know who you were. Anybody who's seen this movie would be like, oh, Big Bo, Kiki, sure. It's Kiki. Yeah. So, Steve, you had not seen this movie before. That's correct, and I have now seen it twice, both times with the dub. Uh, I, I, it would, I, I watched it again today just to kind of, uh, you know, have it, it fresh in my mind, and I decided I'd either watch the dub or I'd sit down and watch it with the kids. Or rather, I'd watch the Japanese version or I'd watch it with the kids, and I, the kids both wanted to watch it, so we sat That's down good. and watched it together. So what's, what's, your, what's your verdict and what's their verdict about it as, as new, new viewers? I thought it was great. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Once I, you know, kind of got over the fact that, uh, you know, no one was going to be stabbed or <laughs> something horrible <laughs> happened in an oven. I mean, there's just so much, you know, even even just things like the you expect the painter to have to give up the cat with more of a fight, you know, or uh, you know, Gigi having a tougher time getting away from the dog. But, you know, once I once I got past that, uh, I really kind of I sort of like luxuriating in the slow pace of the thing and just kind of appreciating the animation as it comes. Uh, Given, though, how sort of gentle and quiet and, and not fast cut things were, I kind of expected the kids to get up and leave after a while. But they didn't. They watched. They enjoyed it. They yep. didn't say much during the film. Uh, the boy enjoyed the, um, the, the cat's antics. Mm. He's a big cat fan. Yeah, ditto here. I think, I think the, the, the Phil Hartman, I mean, we sound so snooty talking about, you know, watching it in Japanese or whatever. But, I mean, the, the, the dub version is great. It, it's really, really good. I would not want to. I would not want anybody to think like, "Don't show this to your kids unless they can speak Japanese," because it is really great. And the Phil Hartman character, <laughs> my, my, you know, my daughter's got a, a Gigi, you know, plush toy. She loves the Phil Hartman Gigi character. I would not. I would not worry about robbing a six-year-old of that experience because they don't speak Japanese yet. Well, my daughter made the observation early on, and she's sitting in the room right now, so she's probably going to be very embarrassed that I'm talking about her. But at any rate. <laughs> Yeah, one of the one of the few things that was mentioned is really early on when she's getting ready to go and she wants dad to pick her up high like when she was little. She oh. she pointed out oh, yeah. she's I, I had those notes too. She Ugh. pointed out she is not a thirteen year old. She acts more like an eight year old. Hmm. Which I thought was fairly perceptive. But from the dad's point really... of view, like, I mean, uh, my daughter is seven and she does that exact same thing and wants me to pick her up over my head like I used to. And I do it pretty much as well as the dad does yeah. it. Like, you get your, your back sort right? of snaps yeah. as you're right. making a test. And, and you know that eventually, presumably, you won't be able to do this anymore, but you keep trying to do it. I mean, that, that scene is a little bit for the parents more than right. the Man, kid. I, I but, will tell you no. that that scene means a lot more to me now with a 12 year old daughter than it did when I was watching with a six-year-old right. daughter. It means a lot more. Right. Well, it's a great moment as a parent, but it's also key that you see Kiki be a kid, right? Yeah. Because she's about to go off right. on this big adventure where she's she can't be anymore. She's got to get that getting in the last little bits. Like, I mean, that, and yeah. that's why the dad whispering her to her, you know, you can always you can always come home. If the you know what I mean, like, yeah. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I heard her say that and I thought, oh, no, the sort of Japanese over the topness of some of these things is is going to sort of throw her off. But really, it was it was to serve a point. So in the end, that actually ended up working, I think, very well. But, yeah, everybody enjoyed it. I thought it was great. Um, I'll probably watch it a few more times and and like it more because I can tell this is one of those growers. You it know? is. It is. And I want to I want to reinforce that, that that what you said about we can be we can be snooty. About this, and I, I, I find it interesting if you think you know a movie to watch, to turn off the, the English dub and watch it in Japanese with subtitles. It gives you a different perspective on the movie, which I think is interesting for a movie that 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 you've watched a lot. But yeah, I'm a, 
I'm a gigantic Phil Hartman fan. I think I love almost well not everything he did because he did some really crappy movies, but he did a lot <laughs> of amazing stuff. And this is a really fun performance from him. And if all mm-hmm. you do is listen to the Japanese version with subtitles, you're missing out on a, a different but good experience. So I just wanted to make it clear. I mean, I challenge you to find that. I'm sure John could come up with a handful, but there's not that many uh, non-American movies. I hate to say foreign. Non-American movies, you know, movies that are not in English. You're not going to find that many movies that are that are survive the dubbing process better than these Miyazaki movies. I mean, they're not perfect, but they are so much better than a, than a bunch of them. I mean, even watching, we were watching... Um, now, let's say we weren't watching this because this wouldn't be appropriate. We're watching the anime X-Men today. And like, you know, it's I, I, you know, it's, it's good. But I mean, but something, John, whenever you talk about how uh, sometimes the characters aren't actually saying anything. And then but, you know, in the English version, they feel the need to add things. And it reminds, oh, back to, oh, think about oh, kung fu movies. Oh, yo, you, you come the master. <laughs> and you've got all these unnecessary grunts added in to try and fill every like mouth movement with some kind of a sound. <laughs> and uh, and I, I have to say, like, you know, I, it would be a really real disservice if we made people think that this isn't OK to watch dub because it is there. They're all I think the Totoro is another one is just obviously so fantastic. They're all they're Although all there, there are a few such moments in this dub. Like there's a scene where she's at the mirror and she opens her mouth real wide and she says, yeah, <laughs> 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 which, you know, it comes yeah. off a little weird, well, but I mean, it's, the, the, they are the deal, very, very well done. The deal with the Disney, Disney's deal with the distribution of their stuffs, uh, of, of the studio Ghibli stuff is that uh, my understanding is they are not allowed to change the video at all and so right. dubs like you're forced like they basically said no we can't touch a frame like can we cut out that part where she has her mouth open for an extended period of time because there's no syllable in english that does that it's like no you actually can't change the video uh but what you can do is you know what we've traditionally done and make her draw out some word or whatever so i'm so glad that they're because like with a uh, with nausicaa they did that terrible warriors of the wind thing where they just chopped the video to bits and i think that's kind of what drove the future deal which said you can distribute our movies in america but you but you cannot change a frame of the video right well that's a good movie question for anybody who's who has watched the japanese which i guess is all of you except me um i understand that when disney did the dub they also changed a lot of the music cues they made it a bit more bombastic not just the the opening and closing songs but also some of the actual score uh is that scaled back in the japanese version or does it still have the same I, not that I noticed. I think, I mean, uh, beginning and ending music are different. Is there a middle part? They said different? that they added there, there some... is There is a little bit, yeah. There's a, there's a tinkling kind of song, I think, maybe around the time that she's on the bike, where they, there's actually a different middle song uh, in the Japanese one that's not that's not as dramatic as the song they put in the English one, but I think that's about it. Mm. They're just different. I mean, this is the interesting thing, is they're just different. They're And neither of them, and, and again, neither of them is the definitive, because the definitive is you're Japanese, you understand right. Japanese, you understand Japanese culture, and you watch the movie, and right. I can't do that. So I'd be really curious <laughs> to hear your take, Jason, on the 2010 version that I watched, because it sounds like all of the things that they deliberately removed from the original Disney dub were smart moves this is why i'm waiting for the blu-ray because i assume the blu-ray will be that same that same uh take on it and and i would i want to get this in hd and i think that'll be yeah. that'll be great and it, it does it don't sounds be so like, sure lucas is part of that whole Disney machine. <laughs> it, it sounds like they backed off it sounds like they really heard the criticism of some of the changes or 
whether they heard that from fans or they or I imagine some of it might be John Lasseter because he's now in a position of authority at Disney and he, and he worships Miyazaki and he worships Miyazaki. So I think maybe even Lasseter is like, can we do some things? Can we fix this a little bit before we put it out again? And and so I think that's cool because it sounds like they they've made it they've used that good dub and brought it back a little to make it a, a little more like the original. Here's a pro tip for watching the for watching uh, subtitled versions of these movies, uh, Miyazaki movies or Studio Ghibli movies in general. Turn off the subtitles during the credits because in these movies, the credit sequences are often, you know, Nausicaa is a great example, like little mini movies in and of themselves. And they're framed with the Japanese credits, which you can't read. Fine. Just pretend they're in its little art. They're framed with the action in the credits. Uh, you know, just so. And when they put the American credits on, they have to cover the action. It totally destroys the composition of all the frames. Turn off the subtitles during the credits. Turn them back on once the movie starts. Off during the credits. And I wish that was the default mode. Like, not that I don't want to see the English names of these people or whatever, but that's that's part of the movie. And I feel like they are altering the video by saying, well, there's a block of Japanese text over here. Kiki's over there. And we're going to put these English names right over Kiki. No, don't do that. Whereas whereas in the dub version, they just take out the Japanese and replace it with english words right so but they it, also mess up the composition on that that was I'm sure they I do noticed. because they don't fit the same i mean nausicaa yeah, is the worst fit. one though because nausicaa is like this beautiful little mini tone poem of credits and there is no place to put english words anywhere <laughs> and they and they do and it's terrible so turn them off all right one Me other too. question about the original japanese is the naked line in there I don't know enough Japanese. It's, to it's know. in the subtitled version. Yeah, is it really? That doesn't, the that doesn't, tell, you, that doesn't the, tell you anything. Yeah. But I, I imagine it would be because, like, again, the, the that's Japanese like a are come up and squeamish. see my etchings, etchings thing, right? P- that's, yeah, that's, I, I was just, I was just frankly yeah. amazed. She wants, she wants to do a drawing with me in it. Says Kiki, and his response is naked. naked? And it's just, oh, Gigi, you so nasty. It's, it just, <laughs> has, it's got such a, a wry feel to it, and I was surprised that they kept it intact in the Disney version because it's. That's a that's a pretty good entendre right there. Yeah. But if that is in the movie though, which I can imagine it would be because again the Japanese are not as puritanical as we are about this. It's still a it fits into the theme of the movie because at a certain point like the idea of her seeing herself as a sexual being or other people seeing her that way or that being a possibility and not it just being a giggle-worthy thing is part of the act of growing up and like they touch on it just barely there and that's that's how it begins. It's like yeah. you just you know you touch on it just barely. Just another thought on that in that respect. When the cat stops talking, it's around the time that he hooks up with the the hot female kitty. So maybe that's his story that you're seeing there. So, not so Randy Garcia on Twitter, while he, while listening to us, said to me, "It's not that Kiki grows up; it's that Gigi grows up and is no longer interested in humans." And I thought, I like that. That's <laughs> that's good. very cat right there. Too. I like that. Cats are never interested in humans. So well, they start out kind of wondering. He, he learned his lesson. John, you had something. Yeah, so I would say like this. This is also my favorite Miyazaki movie. Uh, I don't remember when I first saw it, but it was probably way back in the '80s, and I think I first saw it like at home, you know, like by myself during the summer. It's just one of those one of those lazy summer day kind of movies. It's from '89, so I'm not sure it even got here until like '90-'91, something. Yeah, like I, that. I I don't remember where I, even where I saw it, but like it was definitely one of those kind of relaxing movies that you just like are surprised by and you just sort of let it happen and. Uh, it's just grown and grown on me over the years, and my plan with my kids that I executed was that what <laughs> I would I would indoctrinate them. It was many movies that I indoctrinated with, but this was a big one. Like the two things I was leaning on heavily were basically like Star Wars and Miyazaki. And of all the Miyazaki, this is the movie that I kept showing them. Like first of all, this is 
you can show this like Toto, or you can show this to a two-year-old. Like you can show this to, to anybody and, and most kids will not be frightened by it or whatever. And I just showed it to them constantly. And both my son and my daughter, because it is such like, I knew that what they were going to see for their entire lives were sort of Western action movies with male protagonists that are just like, we all know what that's going to be like. Everything they see is going to be like that, including Star Wars for that matter. Like it's all going to be like that. I have so many, so few go-tos for realistic depictions of young self-actualized females that I just saturated them with them to the degree now that I think my seven-year-old daughter, every time I bring up this movie, she's like, I don't want to see that again. Like she has seen this movie (laughs) thousands of times. And I strongly encourage every parent of sons or daughters to get this movie, to get Totoro and to just, just show them constantly so that they're burned into your children's DNAs. Because until they, once they enter that wider world, all they're going to see is the, the generic, like, there's just so few good examples of this. And it kills me that there's few of them. And I, I maybe I'm burning my children out in this movie, but this movie is a parenting tool, I feel like. like Come on, Daddy. Can't we watch it. a princess tonight? I believe <laughs> just me. want to like, see a princess. You're never, never going to stop that. Like, she has seen all the other movies. Like, some people feel the same way about Frozen, but I, I feel even more strongly about these movies that they are they are sort of just gentle and even-handed and just, just good like they're not educational movies, but just good movies for your kids. I want this movie to be part of like the internal emotional landscape of my children, essentially. And so I've done that. I've done that through repetition. I hope, and that's how I feel about these movies. And I'm essentially willing to to trust my children, trust them with my children. I, I agree with everything you said, but I also want to add that they're weird, which is great. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Well, like, yeah, there's yeah. so many. There's there's so much. You know, and like we're joking about like expecting you know like a bank vault to fall on somebody's head or something. But I mean, you know, we got the way we are from watching a certain kind of uh, cartoon or reading a certain kind of comic over and over and over. And I think you could do worse than introducing something like this. When they're ready for it, yes, yeah, spirited away, when they're ready for it. Because, I mean, what happens in these movies, like, you know, like I, you were making fun of me, uh, John, because I'd finally seen Nausicaa. And that and Princess Mononoke were two that, I, I mean, I guess I'm glad we waited a while because they're both like definitely yeah, they're, a they're a little they're a little rougher you have to know but they are but oh my god princess they're both so goddamn weird it's they're just <laughs> extremely extremely strange yes. it's very difficult to even explain what happens in some sequences because just even describing what combination of fantastic animals this looks like is impossible and it's kind of bleeding but it's not it's all super weird but i think that's really good i really like my daughter started i've started showing her marx brothers movies where like she's gonna have absolutely no idea what's happened but she she asks Let's talk about a gift. A kid who wants to watch Duck Soup. Like, I want her to sit oh, there and have oh. to process what's going on in this. And, and, and you know, I'm not, I, don't mean, I don't mean it merely just as, like, some kind of an SAT uh, study program. But I think the idea of putting things in front of your kids that they don't expect, that they're going to have to ask questions about or just wonder about. I mean, it's, it's just so easy to sit down. And I'm not trying to sound like a hero or something, but it's just so easy to sit down and, and like, walk through that same little Candyland game of these same 35 movies that all of their friends have seen. And I like the idea of challenging them to, like, see something that doesn't, on the face of it, make a lot of sense. I'm an old guy, and I don't understand all of it. So I think that's a really good exercise when they're ready for it. I think it's a really good idea. And, like, the internal landscape of all of their friends are going to be Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Snow White, Monster High, like, like that, like... 
Some like of those the, movies are really good, but they right. are very much like you can describe this movie on the playground and it'll make sense. And how many movies do they see where they where there's an ineffable quality to it? I won't just say magic, but there's something ineffable about it where it's like, well, you kind of just got to see it to really get it. Yeah, and the kids don't appreciate all these nuances of these movies that we're discussing, but I really do feel like that they internalize them and that like that I'm I, basically what I'm trying to do is like I, I want the inside of my children to be some different in some small way than the inside of uh, of other children because I want to give them an experience that they wouldn't because they all that experience that we're talking about they're going to get that whether we do it or not like there's nothing we can do to stop them from from it's getting like, on the it's Disney. like worrying if they'll discover french fries right it's like you know they, they will get on the or dessert like don't we're not going to give our child dessert well good luck with that like you know it's the world is going to happen to them. All you can do, and you get, and especially that's why I say start young. Like you get such a small window of time, two, three, four years old, to make any sort of impression on them. And also, just I mean, from an adult perspective, showing them that I like these movies. I watch them without them sometimes. Sometimes they come down when they can't sleep and they see me watching a Miyazaki movie, and I think that has an effect because they're saying these aren't just kids' movies that we watch; these are movies that Daddy watches too. Like they're good for everybody and. You get very, so few chances to do so that. So do you have a Miyazaki movie on a loop, and then when an infrared beam is triggered, Game of Thrones flips over to the Miyazaki movie uh, as they come down the stairs? Is that how our, our stairs are very creaky, so <laughs> I was able to pause tonight when we heard one kid coming down. It looks like John's playing Journey, but he hits a button and, uh, and Microsoft Excel comes up. <laughs> You know, I mean, like, uh, I realize we're running long, but, like, there's one, like, unfortunate side effect of a good thing. A good thing is realizing that it matters what we show show to our kids. Like, that's a good thing. I mean, I'm really glad that, like, you know... There was a there was a time when uh, you couldn't just have commercials disguised as TV shows, like in the seventies. That was a thing for a while, and then the eighties that went away. I guess I guess I just feel like it's just to to, to amplify what John's saying. Um, that there's there's so many things you could do. Like I've probably there's com definitely comics I've read with my kid. There's comics I've read with my kid this week that she's probably too young to be reading, and I don't feel great about that. But in the case of this movie. Um, why do I say that? Because I want her to be exposed to stuff that's beyond the incredibly broad, darkly drawn outlines of what constitutes children's entertainment. Because it's really depressing. If you if you really look at the landscape that's out there of what you're supposed to be consuming, well, you know, I mean, like Clone Wars, Clone Wars, I think is awesome. I like it better than uh, three of the Star Wars movies. <laughs> it's really good, but it's also... It's 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 really predictable, and I just think the idea of like throwing stuff to your kid that is not dangerous, like there's not that like Princess Mononoke is probably a little much for a young kid, uh, Spirited Away a little much for a young kid, but I don't know. I just feel like giving your kid the chance to have stuff. We don't sit around and read fairy tales so much as we did when I was a kid. So there's not if we're gonna be in this media landscape, giving them stuff, putting stuff in their path that they're gonna have to think about, and maybe they'll have a question a year from now that they don't have today. But I didn't mean to turn this into a parenting lesson. But I just think that's such a great opportunity that, like John says, you don't have forever. Or right. even even in live action movies for adults, like <laughs> poor, poor the actresses that are out there. What roles do they have for women that are that they are the hero of the story unequivocally? No, no, any sort of qualifiers, no rescuing. I mean, like, you say, oh, gravity wasn't Sandra Bullock. Well, things happened to Sandra Bullock and gravity, and she was kind of like more like an inner struggle. I mean, like Nausicaa, straight up, she's the hero of the story. In a, right. in a, not in, not in a hey, you could substitute a male character and be the same story because it wouldn't. She's also she's a female. She acts like a female, but she's also you know she has like it's 
I, I don't just don't even see I, I maybe I'm not thinking one off the top of the head. Someone knows it'll throw it out at me. But like, is there a live action movie that is a straightforward action adventure movie with a female hero to the degree that, that Nausicaa is? And I don't even think there is. And that, that I got is hopes. I got hopes movie. for Lucy. It's not something she'll be watching anytime soon, but I, I, got uh, hopes for Lucy. I don't know. I think she's got to go like, a, you know, be the killing machine in that one. Like there are certain things that we're allowed to have. And I, I would say that I would hold Nausicaa up and, and Kiki for that matter as two movies that could never fly mm. as, as a Hollywood live action movie. Because Nausicaa is no a good actor. Action movie too, though that's the thing is like it isn't just. I think a lot of people think Miyazaki's all like giant, ovoid, smiling faces, and it's it's not. I mean, if you've only seen Totoro and Kiki, and you haven't seen Mononoke and 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 Nausicaa, you can be forgiven for thinking that, but you're missing a big part of the picture there. I just like the fact that everything here isn't handed to the kid that's watching on a platter, right? I mean, there's weirdness. There are there are themes that are really subtle as far as you know, growing up and and you know the whole puberty aspect of it, which won't be picked up upon for quite some time. But there's there's a lot of stuff that goes on that they actually have to piece together themselves. I mean, it's not just... Yeah, you know, why, why did that person... Why did that go that way? Why did that person do what they did? Why were they motivated to have to behave? Why, or why way? is she... Why is she... I can tell... Like, kids can tell that she's upset or sad, but they, it will take a long time before they figure out why. Why is she upset? Because she doesn't explain why her, she's feeling that way. And eventually, like, that's the part of these movies that the kids won't get until they are themselves 12 and go, oh, now I recognize why she shuts down when the kids pull up in the car, right? I, that's too sophisticated at this point. I really liked watching this with the kids tonight because even though they, they would laugh at the occasional you know funny cat joke uh, and wouldn't say much about what was going on in the film, you could watch their faces and you could kind of see the gears turning. Or once in a while, you'd see like a little subtle smile appear on a face at, at an appropriate point. And it's just, it's really fun to kind of see the brain starting to work while they're watching a movie instead of just, you know, things flowing by. Adults should watch this movie because it is, I think, many scenes like it, sometimes you think your kids get more than they do, right? Because very often I will, and my kids hate this, as all kids should, will ask them, uh, why did character X, what is character <laughs> X feeling now and why? I kind of hate you for asking it now. <laughs> they absolutely they absolutely do not know the answer. Sometimes they can tell what the person is feeling of his animation, and they can tell she's not happy or sad or whatever, but they have no idea why. And they're not going to That's such know an awful thing and, and, to do to your kids, John. That's like saying, show your work. I ask them gently, and I don't lean on it. And yes, and yes, they do hate it, and they kind of do something similar. What are some other things a young girl could do in the city to earn a living? (laughs) No, no. What what I'm trying to do, what I'm trying to do is what are other kinds of things we could do naked? I'm I'm trying to gauge whether they are actually following along to the degree you hope they are. And the thing is, they don't they don't understand. Like, I mean, many adults don't understand why. If you ask, if you like to try this with your adult friends, pause a movie and ask them. You'll be very depressed by those answers as well. Anyway. Like, <laughs> but, John, no, no, I, like, but John, I mean, the one, one simple question to ask, that, I mean, that sounds silly, but sometimes I, I, yeah, I'll turn and say, why did he do that? Why, why did he do that just now? Why, why do you think he did that? He did that because he was mad. He did that because he was sad. Well, you know, do, do you think that turned out the way you expected? Like, <laughs> you think you're better than me? No. But I, I think sometimes asking, I think the motivation thing, that's what I love in, a, in any great story. I mean, you know, I, I'm always pulling up to the high level, but I, I'm always most fascinated by stories as representing something that starts in a certain state and eventually more or less ends in another state. And what we learn about somebody who's faced with something that seems impossible. That's what makes a great story. So, 
when you're faced when we're in life, when we're faced with something impossible, like how do we handle it? Like not great a lot of the time. And along the way, you are your integrity as a person is constantly tested by all these opportunities to try and handle this in a way that feels like it's going to be less stressful or whatever. And I think sometimes along the way, it's it's worth you know you don't have to sit down and turn it into some kind of after school special, but it, you could you could do it on Equestria Girls. You could you could just sit there and go like you know why why is this why is this person behaving in the way that they are? Do you think anyway? And having both a son and a daughter, when I asked the two questions of the nine-year-old son and the seven-year-old daughter, it is shocking how much more the seven-year-old daughter is able to understand what's going on in the emotional world of the characters on the screen. I mean, I know that's a stereotype, but I've just got the two kids, and I asked the two kids the questions, and despite the three-year age difference, the seven-year-old knows why that girl or boy is upset, and the nine-year-old, if he knows, he's mm-hmm. not saying. So that brings us to the end of our show, and I would like to thank... My uh, lovely guest for once again spending some time talking about a Miyazaki movie with me. Merlin Mann, it was great to have you back. Thanks, man. It's, uh, it's always a joy to be here. I appreciate it. I'm glad you, uh, you could take the time. And uh, I-, I, love, uh, I love talking about these crazy, uh, crazy Miyazaki movies with you. It's great. Steve Lutz, thank you for, uh, for coming and for watching this movie for the first time. And the second uh, time. Thank you for making me watch this movie for a first and second time. I uh, I really enjoyed it. Well, you, I didn't make you. I mean, you volunteered to do it. Hey, I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Getting the, the band back together. That's true. You're right. A little bit of peer pressure. You're right. I did make you do it. Thank That's all right. Thank I, you for I, doing I had it. a fine time, and I, I feel Whew. like my, my, my horizons have been expanded yet again by Dodged the weirdness of Miyazaki. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And John Syracuse, I wouldn't have done it without you. Thanks for being here. Wouldn't have missed it. My favorite Miyazaki movie. Yeah, I know. I'm with you. I'm, I'm right there with you. And so that wraps it up. Uh, if you liked this podcast, uh, check out episode 84, which is me and John talking about Miyazaki, and this gang in episode 144 talking about My Neighbor Totoro. So thanks to everybody out there for listening to The Incomparable. We'll see you next time. <laughs>